I've got new M1 MacBook Air. It's the first episode we're doing on it. Nice. Nice silent recording in the background. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, what, do, what do they call it on the Pro? The uh, active cooling system. Don't call it a fan. <laughs> Welcome to this special episode of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories and playbooks behind them. I'm Ben Gilbert, and I'm the co-founder of Pioneer Square Labs, a startup studio and venture capital firm in Seattle. And I'm David Rosenthal, and I am an angel investor and advisor to startups based in San Francisco. And we are your hosts. As regular listeners know, we typically cover some of the biggest companies, those that IPO, see Airbnb and DoorDash last week, and the companies that get some of the splashiest press coverage. But today's episode is quite a bit different. In our conversation with Cortland Allen of Indie Hackers, which is the largest community of startup founders, we dive into the stories of the underdogs. What happens when there are millions of people doing small business entrepreneurship? How does the globally addressable market of 3 billion internet users open the door for the nichiest of products? And importantly, what was Cortland's lived experience of starting his own string of companies that ultimately led to starting Indie Hackers and its acquisition by what is now the hottest private company in the world, Stripe? Yeah, man. Last one left standing after last week. (laughs) No kidding. And uh, a lot of people cannot wait for it to IPO soon enough. I can't. That's going to be, I got to imagine, our biggest episode of next season. Hopefully next season. When is this thing going to happen? Season eight, season nine. We'll see, David. We'll see. Well, as always, if you love Acquired and you want more, well, good news. We have the answer for you. The community of Acquired Limited Partners is now an army in the thousands. For those of you who aren't already a part of the gang, Becoming an LP gets you twice as many episodes, access to live events with us and other LPs, even in an all-virtual 2020, and most near and dear to David and my hearts, you have the biggest influence on what we cover in the show. So if you want to join, you can click the link in the show notes or go to acquired.fm slash LP. All right, well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, 
run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the Visa numbers, I just pulled up my Visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's what, 200 times as much throughput at StatSig than at Visa? On the customer side, StatSig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. Okay, now on to our crossover episode with Indie Hackers. Cortland Allen, welcome to Acquired. Ben, David, thanks for having me. So great to have you here. Our pleasure. For anyone who has not listened to uh, your voice for the many hours that I have on the Indie Hackers podcast, obviously we're going to reference it lots and lots throughout the show, but go check it out. And very excited to be doing a crossover episode with you. Yeah, I'm excited to do this. People have been asking for a while for me to do an episode on myself, because obviously Indie Hackers is kind of an interview show. I just tell other people's stories. And I've always been like, as weird as it sounds, like shy to do an episode on my own podcast. So congratulations on being the first people to convince me. Well, look, we are the Acquired Podcast, and you did that mega deal exit to Stripe. So how could we not <laughs> yeah. you know, cover the acquisition of the century? This is great. It's got like all the hallmarks of it. <laughs> Both of our <laughs> yeah, episodes. We'll see. we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Well, David, who is Cortland for listeners who don't listen to indie hackers or haven't participated in the community? Yeah. So Cortland is a former YC founder, MIT alum, and founder of a company that has been acquired by Stripe, all of which seems like it would fit very much into the acquired theme. But there's a twist. Unlike the big go for broke, you know, we were jamming before we hit record here about the typical startup path that we cover all the time on this show is trying to build the new version of, you know, Standard Oil out there, except, you know, 10, 100, 1,000 times bigger than the Rockefellers and the Carnegies could ever imagined. Cortland is all about a different philosophy out there, the indie philosophy, and of course, the company that he started and what he runs within Stripe and the website and the community and the podcast is indie hackers. And indie hackers, I think is really cool. We're going to get into it in this episode. It's kind of like if big tech and startups are the Rockefellers, this is the small business entrepreneurship of the 21st century. And I think it's really, really cool. So we're pumped. Yeah, you said indie hackers is not a, a, not a big splashy go for broke story, David. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You're going to no, tell it's us. Really not. It's really the story of, I like to think of it as the underdogs, you know, like the internet's been around for, for decades. And I think the world is still kind of slowly waking up to how much it's kind of changed the game for just like regular people. Everybody's connected to everybody and you can reach literally millions of people if you're clever enough for pretty much zero dollars. And so people are creating these very tiny niche businesses that could never have existed 20 or 30 years ago. And in some cases, not even five or 10 years ago. And I think it's, it's 
it's becoming possible to like sit down in your living room uh, wearing your underwear or whatever you're wearing and just create something that's super valuable to your community and your customers. Uh, and that's really kind of fun and fulfilling and challenging for you to work on as a person. And that makes you rich in the process. And I think that's pretty crazy to check all three of those boxes. So uh, thousands of people are doing this today. And the question that like I'm asking myself constantly is like, what happens when millions of people are doing this five or 10 years from now? Yeah, I think that's what's so cool is like small business entrepreneurship in the past was a great way to build wealth and do well, you know, for your family and for yourself. But with the same or honestly, like less amount of effort now on the internet, this path exists that the wealth you can build, even by taking this path is still so much bigger than you could build, you know, building a dry cleaning business in the past or running a restaurant or a lot like, bigger. A lot bigger. <laughs> Not to foreshadow our sort of playbook too much, but it does remind me that, you know, in a pre-internet era, the local small business owner uh, was geographically constrained and they could, they, you could have a general store that sold everything, but it could only sell everything to the people in your town. And obviously the, the sort of like large scale version of that is Walmart, but that is a very different type of business to run with the internet. You can just do one thing in one niche, but you have a nationally, if not globally addressable market. Exactly. And so I, I continue like Cortland from listening to your show every time I listen to an episode, I, I get smacked in the face with, wait, that niche is that big? And people find these crazy opportunities. I just listened to the Patio 11 episode and he was talking about bingo card creator. And I'm like, a bingo card creator <laughs> could be a business, but like these niches are so deep or so wide or however you want to describe them. If your TAM is the 3 billion people uh, with the internet, then every niche within that TAM can be on its own big. Hey man, Starlink's coming soon. It's going to be 7 yeah, billion. <laughs> exactly. If you have like a, a business that only appeals to like, you know, one in a thousand or one in a million people, uh, you need to live in like a very big city to create a brick and mortar business that's going to survive. But on the internet, like that turns out to be millions of people who can use like your underwater bingo card creation, <laughs> whatever it is that you're, <laughs> you're making, which means that like pretty much everybody can figure out something really specific that no one else is doing and kind of stake their claim on the internet, which I think is super cool. I hear the real estate is cheap too. So. <laughs> All right, well, so let's get into yeah. your story. Okay, let's start way back before MIT. You're family and your mom specifically was an entrepreneur when you were growing yeah. up, right? So I had, uh, I was just talking to um, Jason Calacanis about this on his podcast where he was talking about kind of opportunity. You know, can anybody start a company? Does everybody have an equal chance to do this? I think in a way like, you know, nobody, nobody's quite equal. Everybody's got kind of a different starting line. And when I look at my childhood, like I had a very good starting line. I had uh, two loving parents. They were very attentive. They were very devoted. Uh, we were sort of middle class, but very comfortable. And like you mentioned, my mom was an entrepreneur. She was always doing her own kind of crazy hijink startup, selling computers and stuff in the 90s. And my dad was part of like, like this elite team of like furniture makers. There's like nine of them. And they each had a different role. And they would make like crazy furniture for like celebrities. So he wasn't making like a ton of money, but he was doing something that he found really fun. He was like the furniture finisher. So you'd take like a, you know, ugly piece of wood and make it look like amazing. And I grew up like these two people in my lives who kind of showed me that you can do pretty much whatever you want and like kind of scratch out a living. Yeah, you can do this and like, it'll be fine. You yeah. can have like a good life, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can have a good life. You know, like we were eating, we weren't missing meals. I had a bunch of other advantages too. You know, like I was an American. I was born in the late 20th century. Because of my mom's computer business that she ran for like a year or two before it crashed, like we had a computer in the internet when I was in the third grade, like right after the web came out. And so, of course, like I was addicted to video games and like whatever I could play. But from the adults perspective around me, they're like, oh, this is a computer whiz. You know, whenever I've got a computer issue, Cortland spends so much time on his computer, he can just like swoop in and fix it. 
So I was like doing all this IT work on the side. And of course, nobody ever paid me. <laughs> I made zero dollars like as a nine-year-old <laughs> fixing people's computers. But I got a lot of positive encouragement because from my perspective, I was just like, you know, playing games and fixing bugs and stuff. But from like the average adult's perspective in the mid-90s, they were looking at like the tech boom and they were looking at Microsoft's stock price and the fact that Bill Gates was like, you know, mega rich. And so they would sort of pay me an encouragement. They'd be like, oh yeah, you're going to be like the next Bill Gates. Like keep it up. And what was cool about that was... You know, I got to be like a little computer nerd and also see that like this really like old <laughs> computer nerd was universally respected by like every single person that I ever met. And everybody told me that it would be a cool thing to aspire to kind of be that. So by the time I was like 10 or 11, I was like, okay, I want to be Bill Gates. You know, I want to start my own company. I want to go to good college. Like, how do I, how do I get on that path? In some ways, it's like echoes of uh, the Tim Sweeney story and, uh, and Epic Games, you know, and him starting out first with it was his older brother right right ben that mm-hmm. uh had a computer hardware business and so he like went out to visit his brother got hooked up with computers got obsessed then started like an it consulting business after the lawn mowing business nolan bushnell too <laughs> i remember when we asked nolan about starting atari he was fixing tvs and not at all to put myself in the same category i was fixing teachers computers in in middle school as my uh, i think i was making like seven bucks an hour quarterly, so sorry <laughs> i was uh, dwarfing you there but yeah that's so many people's entree before they actually get into programming is basically just fixing stuff yeah and i think it's important like i've taught people how to code in subsequent years and there's this kind of base layer that gets ignored of just like computer literacy where the people who learn the fastest are people who just like, they're just very comfortable if their computer crashes or has an error. Like they know all the keyboard shortcuts. They're good at Googling stuff. And if you have that kind of base layer of skills, it makes everything else much easier. So you're 11 or 12. At that point, you know that you want to go into a you know technical field or programming or computer science. Did that ever deviate or was that pretty much like, nope, laser focus from that point forward? Uh, man, I had this like real embarrassing phase where like, I was trying to choose between like, do I want to be Bill Gates or do I want to be Kenny G? So, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I had a saxophone. I was playing like a lot of like just corny contemporary jazz music. Uh, and luckily, <laughs> luckily the computer stuff won out at some point. And after that, like I didn't deviate. Like that was 100% what I wanted to do. I had a ton of like just a ton of fun just like doing stuff in the 90s on my computer. Like a lot of support around me. And you know, in one way, I think I had kind of like the world heavyweight champion of, of childhoods. You know, it was like really, really good, like really advantageous. But I also had some hardship. Like my dad died when I was pretty young. I was in high school. And like for me, that was just like a huge wake up call. Like, oh, shit, sometimes things get real and like no one's going to kind of swoop in to save you. You have to kind of learn how to survive and make it through tough things on your own. And so I got like almost like kind of the perfect mix of like hardship and like encouragement and like privilege in a way. And so, yeah, by the time I, like, I, I left... Uh, to go to college, I felt like pretty ready to take whatever the world was going to throw at me and also like pretty far ahead of the curve in terms of like knowing what I wanted to do. Like there's never a question like, what major do I want to have? You know, what do I want to do after I graduate? Like I was always 100% certain what I wanted. And I'm I'm sure that tragic, you know, death in the family also forces a lot of early maturity that you have to take on sort of more responsibility or at least think about the broader context around your life than just yourself earlier than you otherwise would have. Totally. And like, I think for me, the biggest impact was just like, you kind of get like a floor. You establish like, okay, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And like, I survived it. You know, like it was terrible, like all sorts of like bad side effects you wouldn't even think about. But like, once you establish a floor, then like a lot of other things just don't look that scary. Like they don't look like they're that big of a deal. Like, okay, what if I start a company and it fails? Like, oh no, you know, like I'll go get a job, go get a job. Like nobody died, you know? So I I think that's kind of what I got out of it. I assume that the computer, you know, the love of computers and knowing what you wanted to do 
getting out of the Kenny G phase. That's what brought you to MIT. <laughs> yeah, the, the Kenny G phase was was uh, a good one to escape. Yeah, so I, I remember like um, really wanting to go to MIT. I somehow figured out that that was like kind of the best school you could go to if you wanted to be a computer scientist. I had no idea that Stanford even existed. Like if I had known that and that it was in the heart of Silicon Valley, I probably would have tried to go there. And I also didn't know that like it was even feasible to just not go to college. Like if I had known that I could do that, like I probably would have just done that and tried to start some stuff. But I remember talking to my mom and asking, okay, like you know, how do you get into MIT? And she's like, well, good, good grades and study and uh, apply. And like, hopefully they'll let you in. And I'm like, well, what if they don't? And she's like, you just go somewhere else. And I remember thinking like how frightening that was. Like I got like one shot to do the thing that I wanted to do. And if I got rejected, that I would just be done. And in a lot of ways, like that was a much scarier thing than I think starting companies that like have the risk of failure. Because like you can start a company a million times. Like if it fails, like there's no like, all right, you know, that's it. You got to go somewhere else now. Like you can just keep doing it over and over again. Well, how many companies have you started now? Seven. <laughs> Andy Hackers <laughs> is my, my seventh attempt to do something that worked. And the only one that really, that really worked. So, yeah, I was going to say, so when you get to MIT, you, uh, I think if I, I understand the history, right, you start applying to YC like regularly. Yeah, yeah. I played a lot of times. <laughs> so is this like a, like a every quarter thing? It's like register for classes, put in the YC app. Like, Well, I was like a, a pretty bad student. I didn't understand like the idea of like, I just didn't really want to learn. And I thought all the stuff I was learning in my CS classes was boring. And so I spent a lot of time working on my own side projects. And at some point, I discovered that like, there's this magical entity out there that would like give you a bunch of money to take your project and try to make like a company out of it. <laughs> so I got really hooked. And I would uh, spend a lot of time applying. I got rejected at least like two or three times. Had Dropbox already gone through YC at this point? And come at some point, at some point during like when I was in college, Dropbox like went okay. through and Dropbox was also an MIT startup. So everybody on campus had like a bunch of free Dropbox codes and we had like a ton of free space and everybody knew their story. So there's a lot of like positive encouragement there as well. Like, oh, you want to apply to YC? Like everybody knows what that is and thinks it's cool to just apply, even if you get rejected. Like I got rejected once and I got an email from Paul Graham where he was like, oh, I think, you know, you could have done like this better. I remember just like showing that email to my friends, like so proud, like look, PG responded to me. Right. This is just <laughs> this is a rejection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically. Oh, that's what were some of the ideas you were applying with? So the very first one was this company called Fmail, which stood for like, get this Gmail for Facebook. Facebook released like their platform sometime when I was, I think, a junior. And at that point, like I'd never really built like a web app. But a buddy of mine was just like super encouraging. He was like, oh, this is so easy, Corlin. Just go learn PHP. And I'm like, PHP? Like, what is that? So I went online and I started learning it. And he's like, oh, I'm like, well, how do I extort user That's information? Right, Facebook was all PHP. Yeah, yeah. It was all PHP. And like, I just kept asking, like, oh, well, how do I do this? He's like, oh, just go learn like, like SQL. And like, after a semester, I learned all this different stuff. And I'd like, been able to build this app from scratch. And I thought it was amazing. Like, oh, I didn't know anything about this stuff. And now I can like make my own web app. Uh, and I applied for YC and like, <laughs> of course, got rejected. But a really cool thing happened where because there weren't that many Facebook apps and because I think people were just like looking for stuff to write about, a bunch of like these small tech publications just like wrote about it. They're like, oh, crazy MIT genius figures out a way to put a Gmail inside of Facebook. And like we'd <laughs> scanned it to like look like Facebook and like it barely even worked. It was like super crappy. But I was like, wow, it's like really easy to get like the press to write about you. And like you can do a really simple thing that takes you a semester, even if you're a total beginner. And if like, it's kind of creative and kind of unique and people haven't seen it before, like you'll get attention. So that was a, like a kind of a good experience, even though uh, I got rejected. And that was an era too where there were so few web products where when you did one and you made a new website, it could kind of stand out because there just wasn't a lot of noise. I remember you, you flood back so many memories there. When I was in college, it's funny, yours was Fmail. Mine was called Hacker Follow and it was uh, Twitter for Hacker News. Like I wanted to be <laughs> able to follow people on Hacker News and have a timeline view of when they updated. So my buddy and I built Hacker Follow, 
And similarly, like I learned PHP and MySQL to be able to like store the stuff in a database. And I mean, that that's what everybody did then. That's even what Facebook was written in, David, as, as you mentioned. And uh, the web was like a, it felt like a small place. Yeah, it really did. And I think to some degree, like it always kind of feels like that in hindsight. You know, I think like 10 years from now, people will look back and be like, oh, like the quaint times of 2020 when you could do <laughs> when you could do anything and it would get attention, you know, and like to some degree, like that's true. Like if you spend like very few people have the time to sit down and just like think creatively about ideas. And like one of the easiest ways you want to come up with any creative idea is just to take like two or three things and combine them. Because like once you do these combinations, like you instantly start getting to ranges where like no one has ever done that before. Like if you type like the dog into Google, you're going to get like 10 billion results. But if you talk like the dog left, you're going to get like a million results. And if you like type like the dog left the store with a bone, there's going to be like no results. It'll be like a sentence that no one has ever said before in the history of like the world. And then the same thing is true with ideas. So I think there's always kind of like this, this sort of framework you can use to come up with interesting ideas. And like we both found kind of the same one, you know, like, oh, let's take this one thing and put it inside this other. And like that was enough to stand out. And I think that's still true today. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned Hacker News which I assume is going to continue to play a big role <laughs> in the story here. Yeah. What um, Were you hanging out on Hacker News while you're at MIT and yeah. doing all these YC applications? So back in the day, like Paul Graham used to write on his blog all the time about startups and like all sorts of like different stories. And it was like, he was very motivational, inspirational and positive. And then he had this website he created, which like, again, he just like seemed like it was very haphazard. He's like, what if I had like a little Reddit clone? And of course, it's like now like millions and millions of visitors or whatever. But if you wanted to apply to YC, like you had to be on Hacker News. Yeah. Ben, you know the story, right? It exists because he was dissatisfied with our programming and was asking Alexis to make that better. Like Alexis and Steve, I think it was either to make it better or maybe to invent it at all because that subreddit didn't exist yet <laughs> and got frustrated with their slowness and started Hacker News yeah, that's hilarious. So he's like, yeah, this is not good enough, even though he's an investor <laughs> and read it and just like made his own competitor. I'm pretty sure that's against some sort of code of, of ethics. But you kind of had to have a Hacker News account to apply to BNYC. And like, not only did you want to have a Hacker News account, but you wanted to have like a history of like smart, like intelligent, thoughtful comments because, you know, Paul Graham and the partners are going to look at what, like, what you had posted. So if I look at like my YC account right now, I think it's like, yeah, created October 8th, 2008. So I was on YC like way back in the day, reading everything, digesting everything, and then trying to leave smart comments that like I would be probably embarrassed to go back and look at right now. It's so funny to think about now, like, God, how many companies, there were like 300 companies that go through YC-ish about every year. And like, but it was this little corner and community of the internet. I mean, it still is a community, a very large community now in a certain sense. But um, I mean, I, I remember being a YC fan first and foremost and using the products. Like I was proud to be a Dropbox user and abandon my flash drive because it was a YC company. I suppose that that is even actually a bigger effect today, but it, it felt at some point like a club. I remember, I think it was like senior year of my high school. I felt like I was in some sort of club for even knowing what it was. Yeah, I kind of had that feeling. And then like I eventually ended up doing YC and I remember like distinctly that there were like maybe 35 companies in my batch or something. And all of us felt like, oh man, like YC is like, it's jumped the shark. It used to be so intimate and like so small <laughs> back in the day, you go to PG's house. And now like, it's just this huge and personal thing. You only get to see like Paul Graham like once or twice a week. Like what even is this? And of course now it's like 10 times bigger than it was back then. Yeah. So catch us up there. So what, what idea did you end up going through YC with? Yeah. So in college, I ended up uh, meeting up with like these two grad students who had this like cool idea for this new version of email. And then we tried working on it. And like, it was pretty cool, actually. Like, we got a lot of press, we got a lot of attention, but we didn't charge any money for it. And so after like 
a year of working on that, like we ran out of money. We had won some business plan competition and like it was like 25K. So I kind of just like lived frugally on that for a year in downtown Boston, ran out of money. And I decided like I was going to move to SF and somehow like get into YC. So I, I worked, I got like, a, like maybe enough money for like four months of rent, moved out to SF. And I just started reading like Paul Graham's like RFS, his requests for startups that he would publish. And one of the ideas on there was like kind of related to what I'd already been doing. He had this whole thesis that like, you know, the email inbox is this like unexploited, you know, domain and you could have a Trojan horse where you get in there with like some, some sort of productivity app or something. And then once you get all of the email users off Gmail, like you convert them to your own thing. And so like, that was his obsession, like these like clever tricks you could use to like get a ton of people on your apps. And so I was like, okay, let's, let's just do that. So I met another guy again on Hacker News who like kind of posted like, Hey, I'm looking for a co-founder. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I yeah. read that. Like you met your co-founder on <laughs> yeah, Hacker News, Yeah. He was right? like one of my previous competitors from my earlier email thing. And his, his app like also wasn't doing that well. So we're like, why don't we join forces? We met in a coffee shop in San Francisco and I had like maybe like a month of like money in my bank account. I don't know what I would have done. I would have just like had to somehow find money or like get a job immediately. But we applied together and like the process was super quick. We, we got in. PG asked us a few questions. We had like the YC partner interview and they're like, yeah, cool. And I was just like, okay, well, like when do we get the money? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I can pay my rent this month. Oh, was this, uh, what, was this what, 2011? This was like, uh, like we did winter 2011 for YC. So this was like in the fall of 2010, like November, December. Okay, we so were applying. this was before the Yuri Milner SB Angel deal where you so got that happened during our batch. That was like the like we were the very oh, first okay. batch for that. And I remember the the previous YC batch was super jealous because they only got like, you know, like a 17K or whatever. And so that's what we got at first. It was like 17K divided by two, me and my co-founder. Like, you know, we had like enough for the two of us. We ended up moving into this rent controlled apartment and SF and just eating like a lot of like oatmeal and crackers and stuff. <laughs> and then I remember uh, like one day during YC, they kind of called us down like on a, like a Friday or like some off day. Like, hey, it's very important. Everybody come down. And we went down to the YC headquarters and they had like those telepresence robots kind of like walking around, like sort of like a, a camera, like in a screen on wheels. And there's like Yuri Milner's <laughs> face on it, like this Russian <laughs> oligarch billionaire, like walking around talking to everybody. And like, we've got an announcement. And I was like, yeah, we're going to give everybody like $140,000 uh, of additional money, sort of no strings attached as an investment. So uh, that was like one of the best days of my life. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to start eating like I'm going to upgrade to uh, ramen now. <laughs> and uh, not have to worry about where, where my rent's going to come from. So we structurally understand that. Was that a convertible note that they invested on with that? Um, I couldn't tell you. I can't really remember. I think it probably was a convertible note. And this is before they had like, I mean, this is before they had the safe. I think the safe came came around like two or three years later. But it wasn't like literally free money. No, it wasn't literally free money. Like there were strings attached. But I, th I think it was uncapped though. It was a I really good deal, right. and none of us questioned it. Like we just signed, <laughs> we just signed <laughs> the papers. So at this point, you're getting like probably feels like a huge amount of money in funding, right? Like you, you don't have any customers, right? Nobody's no, paying we had, you we had literally nothing. We had like a bunch of janky code that I was writing, and my co-founder was going around like you know like doing some marketing stuff and trying to generate like press and like hype for like a thing we hadn't built yet. So the idea we were working on was, this, it was called task force. The idea was, uh, you get all these tasks in your inbox, you know, like I've got Ben and David from acquired, like saying, Hey, Corlin, have you prepped for the podcast yet? Right. And, uh, no, you didn't really send me that email, but like if you had, <laughs> I could have used task force to convert it into like a little to do, and it would add it to a to-do list in your inbox. And so then when I worked on that to do, if I added a due date or I checked it off, you would get an email that said like, Hey, Cortland is this far along in the to do or Cortland just completed it. So it was supposed to be like this viral thing that would like take over the inbox and everybody would have it. Uh, and eventually we did launch NYC 
And like we got a decent number of users. By the end of YC, I think we had like 100,000 users. But back in the day, like that was nothing. You know, the social network had just come out a few months earlier. You know, a million dollars isn't cool. A billion dollars <laughs> is cool. You know, that was yeah, kind of the mantra. Yeah. And like no one cared that your app had 100,000 users. Like that was meaningless. I'm also dying over here because after Hacker Follow, my first app was a task list that I launched for iOS 3 which is like right around the same time period. And uh, if I remember right, like Gmail tasks was still this like really terrible UI that like could have had, I mean, you built the missing sort of connectivity for Gmail tasks that would eventually become, I think they turned it into its own thing, but it was like constrained within yes, Gmail forever. Yeah, I think yeah. it's still there. Like if you know the right combination of keyboard shortcuts, like you can <laughs> get a little task for <laughs> you to pop up in Gmail, but it's not the most inspired idea, like a to-do list, right? Every entrepreneur, every programmer has like a bunch of stuff they want to do. When you think about solving your own problem, you're like, if only I could, you know, organize my tasks into like a little list of checkboxes. Uh, and so, so we did that and like it kind of sort of worked, you know, but it wasn't like the home run that you really... But we'll do it yeah, in we'll do it email. In email. There, <laughs> there it was, like the combination. And like that's exactly what the press wrote about. Like, okay, you've seen a task list. You may have seen a task list in email, but if you've seen one in Gmail, uh, <laughs> and people were like, no, I haven't. Maybe I should sign up. <laughs> so we kind of combined oh, those things and we, and we got to demo day in YC, like the very end of YC. And we like presented and investors just like they weren't interested. They're like, yeah, like, you know, you've had like, OK growth, but like, where is this really going? And we've invested in email startups in the past and they're all dead. Like, what's what's going to make yours different? And we didn't have a good answer to that. So we went to the summer after YC with like probably still like 120, 130K of this money in the bank trying to figure out, like, you know, what are we going to do with this startup that's like not growing fast enough for us to raise money? Again, if we have our lawyer right, one of the talks Maybe like, was it like a Tuesday dinner talk while you're on YC was Kevin Hale from Move? Yeah. So Kevin Hale was this, uh, I thought he was like the coolest guy on planet Earth. We had these, you know, YC dinners every week and people would come in and we had like the Heroku founders came in and they just sold for like $300 million and they just bought us, like bought us all like the, you know, the nicest steaks and, you know, they were dressed super suave <laughs> and like it was so, so cool and flashy. Drive up in the Lambos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like I think PG brought in like the CEO of uh, Yahoo at the time, who was like the super extroverted guy who like said a lot and it sounded really good, but you can never quite like tell what he said afterwards, you know, and PG was like, this is an example <laughs> of a stereotypical CEO. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then uh, Kevin Hale came in from Wufu and he was just like cool, calm and collected character. And he was just like, yeah, like we're not raising any money, you know, like we uh, packed our bags, we moved to Florida, like we're making forms, but we're making forms sexy. And uh, we do profit sharing with our team. You know, we go to the beach all the time. People work remote. Like, I don't even know when they're working really. And we get like 10 calls a week from VCs who want to invest. And we're like, nah, we're making millions of dollars. We're cool. And no one else had said that. Like, no one was making money. Like, I didn't even know how you could make money because like Stripe wasn't even in beta at the time. <laughs> it wasn't. So like in your cohort, nobody was like talking no, about no like... one. I mean, there was like there was like a few companies that like had some sort of revenue model, but like all the companies that were celebrated were the ones that had just like raised the most money, you know, who raised from a 16 Z, uh, the earliest, you know, like there's one, one founder on our batch who will not name who raised from a 16 Z, like the very first week of YC and they raised millions and they are like putting up kind of like Facebook growth numbers and everybody like worshiped the ground, like that these founders walked on, like the whole, YC, it was obnoxious to the point where it was like, I didn't want to see them, but like, you're kind of jealous too. Cause like, you know, I, I kind of want that level of success, you know? But at the end of the day, like nobody was making money. Nobody wanted to make money. No one like it was all about growth. And so when I heard Kevin Hale talk about like how Wufu was just was just kind of crushing it, I remember running up to PG and like, hey, like, you know, we're not growing that much. Like, what if we just did this? Like, what if we charged money? And he was like, that's cool. Like, whatever it takes to stay alive. You know, he was very much like, be the cockroach, you know, don't die. Uh, if you need to make money to survive until you pivot to a better idea. Uh, that's what you should do. 
but like that sort of asterisk was always there. Like what you then do is pivot to a better idea that, you know, can make you a billion dollar unicorn because like, well, who wants to just make a few million dollars a year? <laughs> it's so funny. David like, always reminds me that incentives drive behavior. And if you think about sort of YC's incentive here, do you think back on it and say, well, gosh, they, they sort of, for their portfolio construction, they needed us to be a billion dollar company. Or at that point, would YC have been happy with a bunch of Cortland's building profitable businesses? When you interview, they really want to know that you have a shot at becoming a billion dollar business. Because that's how the mechanics, it's like the physics of the situation work. Like they need people to go for the gold. What ends up happening is just a lot of YC companies died. Like even before our batch was over, it was kind of clear that like a few people had given up and they weren't really going to make it. And like, especially in the summer after our batch was over, like just a lot of companies fell off the radar. I remember like talking to PG over the summer, we signed up for office hours and went in and he was just like happy we were like alive and still working. He was like, oh yeah, we don't even know what happens to a lot of these companies <laughs> after a certain amount of time. So like, <laughs> we're happy that you're here. And I think after that, it's less, they're less like adamant that, okay, you got to go for a billion. You got to go for a billion. You got to be a unicorn. They're like, do whatever it takes to survive and get to the next stage. And I think in, in a lot of respects, like that's kind of like the hallmark of being a good entrepreneur. Like how can you take like one, you know, small success and parlay that into something bigger. And eventually maybe you get another shot at going for the unicorn company. So I think in the beginning, they were very focused on us being big. There's all sorts of questions about how this gets big, which were easy to answer because it was like PG's idea that we were working on. But later on, I was like, okay, how do you not, <laughs> how do you not die? Yeah, it reminds me, he's got that one essay. I think it might be in Startups Equals Growth about the hill climbing algorithm. And you basically always try and find the next highest hill. And you would think that you could accidentally find a local maximum and not the global maximum that way. But in practice, whenever you're on a higher hill, that's a better way to get to the next hill. And you can sort of always use that way to find your way to the absolute maximum. Uh, it's a little ethereal, but uh, do you sort of agree with that? No, I completely agree. I think if you are creative enough and you think about it enough, you could figure out a way to your next hill. Like Indie Hackers Today is, to my knowledge, like the biggest online community of startup founders. Indie Hackers in its first month was like a blog. <laughs> you know, like there's a <laughs> lot of blogs out there. You started off with like a very tiny hill and like I made the blog as big as like I think, you know, I wanted to and like maybe it could have been bigger, but it was pretty big. But like there's always some way where you can say, okay, now I have this advantage that I didn't have last week or last month or last year. Like what ways can I use this advantage to like, you know, parachute over to that like slightly bigger hill? And maybe you like lose a little altitude on your way there, but then you're on this bigger hill and it's much easier. Uh, the analogy I like to use, maybe not hills, is like a staircase, right? Like a lot of people want to like jump to the top of a staircase, right? And it's very hard to jump to the top of a staircase. Like very few people are capable of that feat, but it's pretty easy to walk up a staircase one step at a time. And so I think a lot of being a founder is just figuring out how you can go one step at a time, even if you have some grand ambition, how you can start like super small and then kind of work your way there. I love that. And and without jumping too far ahead to indie hackers, it just reminds me the threads of your ability to be a community builder and a participant in online communities sort of starts with meeting your co-founders on Hacker News and being an obsessed participant with that. And like you said, today you run, how do you describe it? The largest online community of... Startup founders. Startup founders. That's cool. I mean, they're, they're indie hackers. Like they don't, they don't mostly have billion dollar ambitions. You know, they're the <laughs> underdogs. But a lot of them, I think once they get started, uh, realize like, oh, wow, like, like, you know, like I'm making some side income. And then a few months later, like, oh, wow, like I can quit my job. And then at some point, like you're making a lot of money and you're thinking, okay, well, like, what do I want to do? Do I want to retire to a beach somewhere? Or maybe like what I want to do is build something even bigger. So a lot of indie hackers I talk to are like, are no longer even indie hackers. They've raised money. They're building bigger companies. Uh, and that's like where their life path took them. Well, that's what I think is so cool about this. Like, unless you would disagree, uh, you're the authority, but 
I don't think being an indie hacker means like you don't want to raise money or you don't want to build something big, right? It's like you want to build something that people want and the customers will pay you for and go from there. And sometimes those become notion right or like and sometimes they become indie hackers and sometimes they become just a business that makes you a couple hundred thousand a year yeah exactly like i don't like to juxtapose indie hackers like as a as a counter argument to like raising money so much as it is a counter argument to like having a boss and working like a desk job and wondering what if for the rest of your life you know being an indie hacker is really about the idea that like you can achieve your own sort of freedom, whatever that means to you. Maybe that's financial freedom. Maybe that's creative freedom. So you can work on whatever you want. Maybe that's like time freedom. So you can work whatever hours and schedule you want. And so being an indie hacker is really this like this confidence in yourself that like, hey, you can create something that you, that'll make your life better, really, and make other people's lives better in the process and give you that freedom. And maybe that looks like raising a ton of money in the future. Not to mention it is the ultimate option value preserving activity where, you know, if you start by saying growth at all costs, don't make any money, we're going to raise venture dollars, you're on a path. You're on a very specific path. If you say, I'm going to build something profitable that funds itself, you got all the option value in the world to continue to take it whatever sort of trajectory you want to. Yeah, exactly. And the kinds of companies that I've seen people build, like I almost feel like we need a new word because you think about business that has all these connotations. Like you, meant, you imagine like a bunch of men in like suits and like a boardroom or something, you know, reading like graphs. Uh, and then like the word startup is like not quite right. It's closer because like, you, you think about tech and technology and it's like internet enabled. It's like they're wearing t-shirts instead of suits. Yeah, like, yeah. Like they're, <laughs> but they're doing the same yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Like there needs to be like some like, I don't know what it would be, like some third word where I'm just like looking at people. Like I interviewed this founder, uh, Sam Eaton on the podcast earlier this uh, this year. And like his sister at some point was like, I want to sell cookies. And he's like this software engineer who's worked in like growth roles at Airbnb. And he just got a job offer at Google. And he's like, no, we're not just going to sell cookies. <laughs> we're going to have like a cookie company and we're going to like be tech enabled. and We're going to have an app and like all sorts of like our own fleet of delivery drivers. And like he's just in heaven sitting around like coding his own apps. Like they don't use Uber Eats or DoorDash. Like they have their own delivery drivers, their own sort of internal mechanism. His sister's like the head of cookie R&D. And they're making like 100 grand a month selling cookies to their local town. And he's doing all this cool tech stuff. And they have like 50% margins too. So like they're living a really good life. And it's like, it's not just like your traditional idea of a business. You know, he's like trying to like make his community better. He's trying to make his life better. And he's not stressing over like how fast can we grow and how much bigger can we make this? He's thinking about, you know, like what do I like to spend my time doing? Well, at the same time, he's like kind of getting rich and making everybody feel great. I think this is like such a big movement alongside you know the traditional startup raise venture capital like be something big right off the bat because like the economic you know generation activity generated by this class of entrepreneurs is probably in aggregate going to be equal if not larger than like the rockefellers of the world did you guys watch that series chernobyl uh, i was on hbo last year oh it was so good great series oh no i heard about it but it was good. freaky they like timed it so like right after game of thrones went off the air they're like boom here's another series don't don't unsubscribe from hbo but uh <laughs> the uh they kind of boiled down the entire story like the work of like this one scientist and it was like an amazing story it was great but like obviously in real life it was probably dozens or hundreds of scientists and engineers working together to try to figure out how to contain this nuclear disaster and like the reason why they did that is because it's just easier to tell a story about like one person. And it's the same in business. Like it's easier to tell the story of like one company. We're all fascinated by like how big Apple is and the impact that Apple has. Or like, you know, McDonald's is crazy. Like they have 20,000 restaurants in the United States. Cause that's like the easy story to like to understand and to tell. But I think like the much more impactful story is like there are 600,000 individuals who have restaurants 
in the United States. And like, that's way more impactful than like McDonald's having 20,000 restaurants, but it's a harder story to wrangle. It's like a harder story to tell and to connect the dots. And I think the way I look at what I'm doing with any hackers is like, I'm trying to like connect the dots of all these really tiny tech businesses that are never going to make the news. You know, they're not, you know, Amazon, they don't have a $2 trillion market cap, but like what happens when like a million people are building businesses and make millions of dollars online? You know, what does that look like? When this comes out, we will likely have just done the DoorDash and the Airbnb IPO episodes. There is a narrow set of practitioners, whether you're a founder or an employee, who can learn from the tactics and the playbooks accomplished with DoorDash and Airbnb. But based on all the media coverage, that those are the stories that get told because that's the simplest and most interesting narrative. But if you're looking to actually learn... Like, let's say Indie Hackers continues to grow and expand and you figure out more ways to parallelize it. And at some point, there's, you know, 100,000 stories of businesses and the playbooks that they ran on your website. Like, someone can find an incredibly narrowly applicable business that's just three years ahead of them and run their playbook on their own business in a way that is far more useful than the one story that everyone focuses attention on. Yeah. Exactly. That's kind of the, the goal of like a lot of the things that I'm building on indie hackers. So like, how do you see like these companies like very early days? And then how do you like filter down to like a very specific niche? So you find the company that most matches the profile of what you're trying to build. And so we have like this directory that I kind of haphazardly built like two and a half years ago. And I was like, oh, we should have a directory of products. Then I, I haven't touched the code in like two and a half years. But like when I built it, it was like, okay, we had like 50 people on it. And I checked the other day and there's like 12,000 products on there. And they all have like a little timeline where they're like saying, okay, here's where I launched and here's what I thought about my launch. And I thought I was being ridiculous <laughs> saying 100,000, but it shouldn't be long. No, it shouldn't be long. You know, and I, I think it's just a resource that needs to exist. Like you need to be able to go out and see how other people are doing it because that gives you, I think, the confidence to go do it yourself when you see that someone who's like not that different from you, like kind of put their playbook online. I'm going to do David's job here. So uh, take us from <laughs> the light bulb of task force should be making money to the founding of Indie Hackers. How did that period of time happen? Yeah, I'll give you I'll give you the whirlwind story. So at some point during the summer after YC, Stripe came out of Stripe entered the beta phase. So this is like 2011. And Stripe's like, hey, uh, you want to make money with your product? Go for it. Were they in your batch or were they, they were before you, right? They were before I was, like maybe by a year or two. They took a, a while before they got their product to the point where it was ready, understandably, because there's like a lot of regulation dealing with banks and stuff. But uh, they kind of launched into beta and we got like a good first look because we were kind of on the YC mailing list. So like we threw up kind of a Stripe subscription in like maybe like a day or two, just like over a weekend. And the next weekend, I think we made like $3,000 in payments, charging people like five bucks a month for like this crappy <laughs> to-do list Chrome extension. Like I thought we were going to make like $100 or something. And I was like, holy shit, like we can like kind of pay our rent, you know, like <laughs> we can pay for stuff with this. And so of course we went to the YC partners we're like, hey, look at this. This is cool. Like we're making a few thousand dollars. And they're like, yeah, but what if you were making like way more and you had a different idea that wasn't a tiny Chrome extension, which in some ways is good and bad. In hindsight, if we had stuck with what we were doing, we could have probably grown it to a much more substantial size and iterated. Uh, instead, what we did is we like did what you should never do. We just completely started over from scratch with an idea that we thought was like bigger and better. And we sort of violated that principle of like taking it one step at a time. And so probably over like the next six or seven years, I started five or six different companies. Each one, you know, got to a point where it made like a few thousand dollars in revenue, but it was never really a big deal. It was never like the success that I really wanted. And I think this is kind of an important thing that I realized. Like the first couple of years, I was just like pedal to the metal on my computer every day, coding as much as I possibly could. Like this is going to be it. You know, like 
I'm going to succeed. Like, this is going to be it. Like, it has to work. And, like, it never did. And not only did I not succeed, but I also just, like, wasted a bunch of time, like, not living a very fun and productive life. Like, I don't even remember, like, one or two of those years of my life because I was, like, literally just doing the same thing every single day. And now my, my model that I have for it, kind of framework in the way I think of it, and the way I wish I had thought of it then, was that everybody's kind of got like a certain number of companies that you need to start before you succeed. For some people who are exceptionally talented or lucky or both, like that's just one. They're going to succeed right out of the gate. Some people, maybe it's like 35. For me, it was like seven. And really all you need to do is just to make sure that you like, you don't quit before you get to that number. Like that's really the entire name of the game. Like just don't quit before you get to the number where you succeed. And so you should just structure your life to make it so it's easy for you not to quit and to make it so that like the journey itself is like actually pretty fun and you're learning a lot along the way because like you're not just building a startup in a vacuum like you're meeting people and you're picking up new skills and you're learning new things and like like it, the startup is kind of like the journey is as important as like the destination at the end of the day and so not nowadays and like eventually i kind of figured it out like oh i'm like learning so much stuff like i should make sure that like i'm really enjoying my life while i'm building stuff so the last few years there before i ended up starting indie hackers were actually really pleasant and I feel like I kind of leveled up as a person while I was building my startups instead of just sort of like, you know, worrying every step of the way, like, am I there yet? You know, is it going to work? Is this going to be the one? Hmm. That's such a great lesson. And just like a couple of points of clarification, were these all inside the same like entity or, or was it different co-founders or how, how did that sort of technically play out? Yeah. Like the first one or two were kind of inside the same entity. And then my co-founder and I split up. And we kind of just declared our YC startup dead. Like this is, you know, this is the end. I think I quit and he kind of like bought me out for my shares. And then I just kind of did my own thing. And like by that point, I realized like, okay, what I need to do is figure out how to like make this last. Like I want to spend the rest of my life just working for myself on whatever I like. Like I don't want to go get a job. Part of it was like, I just didn't like the idea of having a boss. Like me working at Stripe today is the first full-time job that I've ever had. Like I just don't like to be told what to do, I guess. And, and part <laughs> of it was like this, like, I don't know, this pride of like, I don't want to have to interview somewhere. Like I don't want somebody to be able to reject me. Like I'm, I want to be unrejectable. Like I don't want to ever put myself in a position where somebody could say no. And so like, okay, I just want to keep doing this myself. So I would just like survive off of kind of my income from some of these apps because I would keep them running and they'd make like a few hundred dollars a month or a few thousand dollars a month. And then when I got low on income, I would just go get a contract job and then like work on the side et cetera, et cetera. And just kind of like make it so I never had to quit, you know? And I think there's a lot said about startup failure. Like, okay, maybe your, maybe your ideas fail because like the market was too small or because, you know, your product took too long to develop or you ran out of money. But my, my take on it is kind of that none of those things actually kill your company. You know, like those are just obstacles, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so your market wasn't big enough and then what, right? Like you quit, <laughs> like you didn't have to quit, right? Yeah. You could have like, that's kind of like, if you imagine like a startup journey, like being like you walking from like you being an early pioneer walking from the East Coast to California, right? Like those are just like obstacles. There's like rivers and mountains and like you can kind of like step over those or go around them or you can just be like, fuck it. I'm just going to like stop here and just live in Kansas, you know, and like <laughs> you don't want to stop and just live in Kansas. Like you want to keep going and find a way to keep going. And so for me, that was just living super frugally and figuring out a way to like start the next thing, which meant taking on contract work and building up my savings whenever I needed to. Yeah. Default alive or... uh at one point, I ran a startup weekend in Seattle, and Bo Lu, who actually I think went on to do YC with his company Future Advisor, and uh, and, and Sequoia funded it. Um, he gave this great talk called "You're Alive as Long as You're Not Dead," and he was like, "Yeah, lots of things, bad things can happen at your company, but as long as you don't shut it down, 
you have not failed. Like your company is still in the act of succeeding. You're, you're not successful yet, but you are in the act <laughs> of succeeding until you call it quits. <laughs> exactly. And I, that's always stuck with me. Yeah. And even if you do quit a particular company, like I've quit lots of different companies, but like as long as you don't quit your overall journey, like you're still on that path, you know, you're still headed to California and you like, you're going to eventually get there. Who knows how many startups it's going to take, but you'll get there as long as you're sort of learning and you persist. So uh, I think the most important thing you can do is figure out how to keep going. All right. So the genesis of indie hackers. The genesis. How did that happen? So I just rolled off a contract job and I had about a year of runway in the bank. So I was like, okay, here we go. Like take four. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to figure out like <laughs> something to work on that's going to work this time. And you know, worst case scenario, it's going to all fail and I'm, I'm going to go back to working contract jobs. Uh, and so I started working on this one app that I called Knox, and it was kind of like this mint clone for your phone that would like buzz you with your finances. And like maybe like two or three months into it, I was like, this is an endless slog of coding. Like, this is going to take me forever. I don't see like the end of the rainbow. Like I need to just call it quits right now. Like in the time where I was working on that, I saw a couple stories in Hacker News of people who would come up with new ideas and were already making like five or 10 grand a month. And like I hadn't even launched my thing yet. So I was like, okay, this is like a dud. I should scrap this and go back to sort of the drawing board and figure out, you know, what can I like... What are all the different lessons that I've learned after years of doing this? Like, like, let me make sure like I'm systematic in how I approach this, so I'm not just kind of making the same mistakes again. Because I had repeatedly made this mistake that a lot of software engineers make, where we just, you know, spend way too much time coding. And like, I think the biggest lesson at the top of the list was like, only work on things that you can build in like a few weeks. You know, like I went from idea to basically launch with any hackers and exactly three weeks. And it didn't require very much code at all. It didn't require like a lot of marketing or anything. It was just like super, super easy. And I think this is one of the levers that a lot of founders like don't realize that they can pull. Like everybody's trying to figure out like, how do I get enough money to work on my idea? Like, do I need to fundraise? Do I need to, you know, borrow money and go into credit card debt? And like the other lever people pull is like, oh, how do I get more time? You know, maybe I'm going to work nights and weekends and all this stuff. And like, I want to work a three day work week instead of five day work week. But I think like the third lever that's probably the best is like, how do you just start smaller? Like, how do you figure out like what's an easy, even easier thing to do? And for me, my idea was kind of like, okay, I want to build kind of an indie hacker business so I can sort of, you know, pay my rent, pay my bills, and then figure out what I want to do next. A ton of other people clearly want to do this. Like I see them on Hacker News every day asking all these questions to people who've done it and sharing their stories. Maybe what I can do in a very meta sort of way is build a better version of these hacker news discussions. People are always talking about this, but their stories kind of suck. You know, they're like leaving out important details and like everybody in the comments is asking them like, well, how'd you come up with your idea or how much money are you making? And like, that's not necessarily in their stories. If I can compile all of the stories that I found and tell them in like a really compelling way, I make sure I always ask for revenue numbers. I always ask for how they come up with their idea. I always ask about technical details uh, and I can put that in one place. Then I'm making life easier for like both me and a bunch of people who are like me who are trying to figure out how to be indie hackers themselves. So that was kind of my idea, kind of phase one. Like I didn't have a revenue model. I didn't know where I was going to go from there. But I was like, that's a really easy place to start. All I have to do is email some people and, you know, get their information, put it on a blog and launch it. And like, I'm 100% sure people on Hacker News are going to eat it up because they've already been eating up stories like this before. And is the idea that this is going to become a business for you at this point? Or is the idea really like, this is a project, I, I have it, envisioned in my head. I know the scope. I know how to build it. I think people are going to love it, but it's a project. 100% is going to be a business. I don't know how I'm going to make money yet, <laughs> but it's 100% like at some point, like I'm going to start in this really small pool. You know, I'm going to build, I'm going to take the first step on the staircase and do something that works. And then from there, I'll have some advantage that I don't have today. Like maybe I'll have an audience, maybe I'll have a lot of traffic, maybe I'll have a big mailing list. And then from there, it should be easier for me to figure out how to make an actual business. The revenue aspect 
maybe revenue and profit aspect of the stories you were telling was that super key? Like, cause I can imagine like, you know, when you're trying to find like, oh yeah, you're talking all this game about like how great it is, all the stuff you did, but like, is it actually <laughs> working? Like, you know, give me the, like, <laughs> like that feels like so, almost like the, like the Zestimate before yeah. Zillow, right? Like, you know, it's like, Hey, this house looks good, but like, what's it worth? Like, yeah. you know, do you, uh, how was important extremely was that? Extremely important. Like if I could write a startup book, I would call it uh, problems first, where like the first thing you want to do is you want to figure out like, what are the problems that your potential customers have? So you don't build like some random product that like doesn't solve their pain points and when i was like reading all these comments on hacker news like i was trying to find a business idea and i didn't want to read comments from people who like didn't have proof that their business idea worked you know somebody said like oh i've got this great company i'm working on it it's really great you know it does this and this and this and like they don't share their revenue numbers like for all i know they're making like five dollars a month you know and it's not that great and i could tell everybody else in the comments like had kind of the same problem they're like hey we only want to upvote the stories that share their revenue numbers we only want to upvote the stories that have like some sort of proof or some sort of like inspirational thing that we can like grasp onto to know this person is legit anybody can give you advice and tell you what to do but if there's no like outcome <laughs> that's a result of that advice you don't know if it's good and so don't train your model on garbage data exactly and so like that's a, a thing where like there were a lot of other interview sites on the web that talked to entrepreneurs there are pretty much none at the time that realized how important it was that like you needed to be transparent like you needed to include revenue numbers and so when i went out and i started emailing people and saying like hey uh you know my name is Corlin. i'm starting this website it's going to be called indie hackers like will you tell me your company story and oh by the way like i need like all your revenue numbers <laughs> half of them were just like fuck off like why like you're 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 nobody <laughs> like why would i give you my revenue numbers and then like half of them yeah. didn't respond and like a tiny percentage were like hey you know what i think this is super cool i'm happy to pay it forward somebody you know did the same for me in the past. And so by the time I launched, I think I had I'd gotten like 10 people to agree to share their entire story and their revenue numbers. When you launched, you built the site, right? So like you didn't go to Squarespace, you didn't go to Webflow. You did what what was the thinking behind that? Yeah. So I had a couple sort of reasons for that. Part of it was I had a bunch of other ideas that I had come up with and my brainstorming. And Andy Hackers kind of scored the highest on my rubric because it was so quick to build. But I felt really bad because like here I am, the software developer, like from building all these other <laughs> startups, like I learned so much stuff from building startups over the years and like failing time and time again. Like I learned how to design, I learned how to do front end development and back end and like server admin stuff. And here I was like going to start a blog. <laughs> so uh, I was like, wow, this is such a waste. Like I want like to throw myself some kind of bone to make this fun because starting a company should be fun. Like you should enjoy the the journey, not just the destination. And so I said, okay, well, I'll do a blog, but I'll allow myself to just build like my custom blog from scratch even though that's going to add like another week and a half to my launch time or whatever, like I'll allow myself just that little bit of fun. And then part of it was kind of a branding and so strategy you weren't play. yet thinking like Stripe Revenue Connect, no, uh, no. like, you know, <laughs> building a community and like, no. that was like kind of in the back of my mind, the community stuff, definitely not like the product directory and Stripe Revenue stats or like a lot of the stuff that exists today. But like I did have kind of a strategic sort of session with myself. So I spent like one day just thinking strategy. Like, cause in the beginning of your company, there's a bunch of decisions that you make that are much harder to undo later on. Like you'll tell yourself like, Oh, I'll use a crappy design now and redesign it later. But like, really that's a lot of work and you have a lot of more urgent things. You know, you say, Oh, I'll have a crappy name now and have a better name later. But like, really like it's hard to change your name later on. So I had been bitten by like all these issues. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna take one day and make all of these like semi-permanent decisions. Like what do I want the color scheme to be? How do I want the site to work? What do I want it to be called? And kind of the three decisions that I came to were, number one, I want the site to be named after kind of a new class of people. Because I was like, well, there's no name for like these people and these 
in these discussions. It's like really hard for them to find each other even because like there's like, what do you even search for? Like story of person who bootstrapped startup and makes 5,000. Like, there's nothing to search for. It's so hard yeah. to find. So it's like, I'm going to call it Indie Hackers. I had a bunch of like worse names, but Indie Hackers is the best one I came up with. I decided I wanted to make the site like blue. So it's like this very dark blue color that's like probably not very accessible and kind of hard to read. But every other site in, in existence was just like white with black text. Everybody was writing on, you know, medium. It all looked the same. And so I, I wanted mine to stand out. So that if you ever read two indie hacker stories, you would instantly remember that you'd been to this website before. And then I wanted to do it custom because I just didn't want to build on somebody else's platform. Like I didn't like the platform risk. I've been kind of burned by that before building on Gmail and you know, they would change their API all the time and like kind of break our apps. And so I didn't want to deal with like, you know, putting up a blog on medium and having it look like every other medium blog and then medium changes their business model or something. And now I'm screwed. So those are kind of like the three decisions I made back then. And all of them, I think turned out to be pretty good in the long run. And the etymology of the name, it's interesting thinking about when you started this, the notion of an indie developer was already a thing. I mean, I remember considering myself an indie developer in 2008 when I started working on my first iPhone app. And I think Craig Hockenberry and a bunch of the like Icon Factory people, they they were saying, oh, I'm an indie developer, indie, you know, iPhone or Apple developer. And obviously Hacker News was sort of like a, a thing. But those communities were basically non-overlapping. Like hackers were what people who were technical and wanted to start high growth technology startups refer to themselves as but indies were what the like lifestyle developer community primarily centered around apple platforms kind of called themselves yeah and i wasn't thinking about like honestly any of that indie stuff like it wasn't even i I wasn't even aware that they were like indie developers i was just like okay well like i want like the idea of like an independent programmer because again it wasn't so much a rebellion against raising money it was a rebellion against you know going to work for the man and like, you know, making Google $10 million a year from your code, but you're only getting like 200K of that, you know, like, why don't you start your own thing and be like kind of your own indie developer? And Hacker News was so called because like hackers are just another word for programmers. So the idea is like, okay, you're a programmer, but you're independent. There's no cap on your salary. You know, there's, there's really no limits. Like you can do whatever you want. Yep. And before we move on from this point, talk to me about platform risk, because in my mind, you know, we think about this for acquired too. We're, we're always trying to get the most direct relationship possible with our listeners, with our LPs, with our, you know, with everybody. And there's always some platform risk. Like we've collected email addresses from one out of, I don't know, six or seven listeners, you know, all, from all the various reasons that people join our Slack or they sign up for the emails, which, you know, now have the playbook. So there's even a further incentive to sign up for the emails. But at the end of the day, even if you have someone's email, you know, you could go to their promotions tab. Like you never, it's not like you can call that person. There's always some amount of indirection between you and, and your end customer. So how do you think about how far you should go on eliminating platform risk? Yeah, I think everything in business is basically a trade-off. And what you really want to do is just be like aware of the trade-offs that you're making. Like there are no hard and fast rules, like never build on a platform, right? Like if you build on a platform, maybe it can give you additional distribution, but then you get the risk that they might shut you down or change things, or you might like lose out on the branding or the ability to differentiate yourself, et cetera. Like maybe you can charge a high amount of revenue per user, but that means you're going to get, you know, maybe fewer users in the door, fewer customers, but then also you can spend more to acquire your customers. It's all trade-offs. And so for my particular situation, when I looked at that trade-off, like really the only contender was like, okay, I can like maybe try to build a big Twitter account where I share these stories. I can repeatedly, you know, post on like Reddit or Hacker News, or like I could have a kind of a medium blog. Like those are the big platforms that I considered. And every one of them I thought would give me either very limited distribution. Like how much did medium really help with distribution? It was kind of hit and miss. Um, and they would also just like completely destroy my ability to have any sort of branding. 
And I knew that kind of step two in this playbook might be to build a mailing list or a community. Like I wasn't sure, but I knew that like if I was going to name it indie hackers and like go for something where the brand actually mattered, which I think is important if you're going to have something where it's kind of like free and I was just getting like lots of users in the door, but I didn't have a business model, that I wanted to own my brand. And so it wasn't worth it for me to use any of these platforms, even though they would help with distribution, if I could instead just like do my own. And I also had like kind of my own distribution strategy. I already knew that people were going to be eating this kind of stuff up on Hacker News because they already were. And I already knew that Hacker News had like a lot of traffic. So it's like, okay, I don't need Medium. You know, I can do it on my own. So like I get like no real benefit from Medium and I get all this additional risk. Like the trade-off just wasn't worth it. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I mean, in some ways you maybe ran the uh, uh, the Airbnb playbook of um, Exfiltrate Craigslist. Yeah. <laughs> you did for this segment of Hacker News. Yeah. <laughs> My buddy uh, Greg Eisenberg has this whole idea of like, you know, unbundling Craigslist, unbundling Reddit, unbundling Hacker News. It's a huge community. There's all sorts of sub like discussions happening in there that happen regularly. Totally. There's a, it's a pretty big tent. Exactly. So you, you build the site, launch the blog on your site. As I understand it, pretty quickly you figured out that email was a pretty big unlock kind of on both like for the interviews you were doing call it the supply side of these stories and for readers for the demand side totally. too. you can almost imagine the web is like a collection of like feeds or like destinations and some of them are places where people go like habitually. Like I habitually check my email. I habitually check the notifications on my phone. I habitually check Twitter. I'm just like addicted. Like I'll sit down and just like press T on my keyboard and like black out for a second like I'm on Twitter. <laughs> and then there's other places where like people just don't have a habit. Like I made indie hackers. No one on earth had a habit of regularly visiting indie hackers. And they weren't going to have that habit anytime soon because I was publishing like once or twice a week. You know, like Twitter's got new content every single minute. So uh, for me, it was like, okay, well, how do I hook into like one of these feeds that everybody already habitually looks at? And it, it was a combination of both Twitter and email. So I made like the Twitter indie hackers account. I tried to tweet every story that I had so that you would sort of incidentally run into them when you check your Twitter and be like, oh yeah, I remember indie hackers. Let me go back there. And then email was a huge one because like I actually own the email addresses when people sign up. Like I can take that with me anywhere. Like, like you can't shut down my email list. And so from day one, like I had kind of a email collection box at the very top and like at the bottom of every interview, just trying to get people's emails. And I think in the first week, we got like a thousand or fifteen hundred emails. And it was like kind of continued on that pace for a while, like a thousand emails a week from people from Hacker News and all over the web who just like loved these success stories. Like they would come and read them and they would be like so inspired to hear that like, you know, so and so was making a like 10 grand a month from like their travel startup and like I'm a developer. I could do that too. And so they would immediately get on an email because like, they want more of these like stories. You know, They want more um, glances at like, what's possible so that like, and when the day comes that they're ready to start their startup, like, they haven't forgotten where to go to see those examples. You got to have some reason that like, you're going to show up for people. Like, well, one of the things, you know, I kind of joke about it. I don't know. There's no way to scientifically know, but like, and we didn't plan it this way, but the fact that our podcast name is ACQ, like in almost everybody's podcast feed, we are at the very top because for whatever reason, podcast feeds are organized alphabetically. <laughs> and like, how much benefit have we gotten from that? Like, I don't know, but Probably I'm pretty a lot. sure we've gotten a, a, a yeah, lot. Right. We, got, <laughs> we, we got at the top of an accidental feed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it's a hard one lesson for a lot of people who are starting startups. Like if you're an indie hacker, you don't have like a bunch of investors and mentors. Like you probably just kind of by default believe like, a, you know, if they build it, if I build it, they will come. You know, I'll just build some cool stuff and get a bunch of people like in the door. But it turns out that like 
building stuff is kind of easy. <laughs> even like even if you're not a developer today, like you can stitch stuff. Like I talked to a guy yesterday who built like a whole Slack bot without using code at all. He doesn't even know how to code. And uh, the hard part is like getting people to actually care about what you're building and actually find it. So that means like you have to actually solve. Well, it's like and you run into it. Yes, yeah. and run into and it. Run, yeah. And it's not just run into it once. It's like run into it like repeatedly, several times. Repeatedly. And like that's very hard to do. But if you think about it like really carefully before you start, then often like you can come up with something. Like what I found is helpful is like you just go to one of the places where people find things and you just look at what they're sharing. You know, that that's kind of accidentally what I did with indie hackers. Like I was already in Hacker News and it took like days of me reading these threads before it clicked. Like, wow, everybody is here sharing this thing. Like, why don't I just like make my thing better than what they're sharing here and then share it in the exact same place? Okay, so we've talked about like the this insight that you had that enabled growth. So, you know, we sound like uh, circa 2011 YC, you know, like tell me about your growth rates. <laughs> like now let's now let's shift to the indie hacker conversation. How did you start making money? Yeah, so Actually, what happened is like my very first sort of hit of revenue was completely unexpected. It was like maybe two weeks after I launched and some company was like, hey, can we sponsor you? And I was like, sure. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) How much do you want to pay? And they're like, how much traffic do you have? And I told them like, sure, we'll, we'll give you like 750 bucks a month. And that to me was insane because everything that I had ever built was like some like rinky dink consumer app where I was like begging people to pay me like five bucks a month. <laughs> yeah, pennies. And people were like, well, no, it doesn't have this feature. I can't possibly afford five dollars a month. And then they'll go like <laughs> buy like a bad coffee and like dump it out, you know. So like this company like offering me hundreds of dollars like was like a wake up call. Like, oh, I can like make money from sponsors. But I was also like super focused on growth because I was thinking, okay, well, I've got like maybe six months of runway and I've got six months of savings in my bank account. I've got time. Like, why don't I just grow the site even bigger? Because there's only one of me. Like, I don't have that much time to try to sell ads and build a site and do all these interviews I'm doing every single week. I'm just going to grow it, not worry about money, and I'll worry about it later. So I did that for like three months. I just kept trying to grow the site. <laughs> I didn't figure out how to grow the site at all. <laughs> I did like never found something that was bigger and better than getting on the front page of Hacker News. Go figure. And so by December, I launched in August. By December, I was like, okay, screw this. I'm going to start trying to make money. And so I started like basically emailing my list, which at that point had probably been grown to like 10 or 15,000 people uh, and saying, hey, like, you know, here's the email with the new like this week's interviews. But also, by the way, here's an empty ad slot. Like your company could be here. And I was very lucky that yeah, like, literally, it's the billboard that you see with the like your ad could be. Yeah, here. <laughs> it was exactly that, but in an email form. And I put that on the website too. And like, it turns out when you have a company that targets people who are starting companies, <laughs> you have a lot of potential advertisers on your mailing list <laughs> who all want to basically advertise with you. And it also turned out, which I didn't realize at the time, that indie hackers were like some of the worst possible <laughs> customers to buy ads because like these are very fledgling startups. Like these are people who had decided to start something because they read about it on indie hackers like two months ago. And if they were going to spend like five hundred thousand dollars on an <laughs> ad, like that ad, it better work. Like that's not that's like their whole yearly ad budget. And so I would, it's almost like you would want a company that is selling tools to <laughs> people. Almost <laughs> like that. <laughs> so I went through like a lot of these awkward conversations where I'd run ads for people. Like I just wanted to do right by them, but like the ads didn't always get enough clicks. And sometimes like I would refund people and it was just like very stressful. I didn't like doing it. And so I created kind of like a dream list of companies. Like, okay, which companies actually have a lot of money that would be good sponsors? Like I've no, I've no experience doing sales, but like I'm going to have to figure out how to do this. And I had at the very bottom of my list, like my number one dream company who should be sponsoring indie hackers was Stripe. I'm like, okay, I'll eventually get to them. But like, I want to like figure, my, I'm like, I want my shit to be good. Get some warm-ups in first. Yeah, yeah. I need some warm-ups, you know? And so I... I don't warm up on Broadway. <laughs> exactly. You don't want to like embarrass yourself in front of everybody. So I got some warm-ups. I sent a lot of cold emails. I found like the heads of marketing on LinkedIn 
Uh, my buddy Jeff, who ran a podcast I was on, uh, gave me kind of his list of leads for who was advertising on his podcast. And like to my surprise, it was like way more pleasant selling to big companies than it was selling to small ones. Like I would get someone whose entire job it was to spend a marketing budget and they would just want to talk about their kids, <laughs> talk about their vacations and then be like, oh yeah, you're cool. Like here's a check for five grand. And I'd be like, holy shit, this is a thousand <laughs> times easier than selling to people who are broke. <laughs> yeah. Not to mention like one of my key startup lessons learned over the years has been sell to things that have budgets. Like don't try and create budget, fit into a budget. And sure, there's emerging markets where like the budget line item is not going to exist for your thing. But you're so right that if if there's somebody whose job it is and they have a budget to spend, like your life is just going to be so much easier. And I think that applies to even coming up with startup ideas and trying to figure out a business model. Like it's kind of counterintuitive. Like people repeat this mantra, like, you know, solve an unsolved problem. And it's almost like you want to do the opposite. Like you want to look at problems that people are already paying a lot of money to have solved and kind of like insert yourself there. Like my friend started a company called Key Values. She's like been one of my best friends for years. Her name is Lynn. And like her company helps startups hire engineers. And you know what? Like startups are hiring engineers just fine, like well before her company came along. But like we kind of picked that idea because we looked at like, well, where are companies spending money? You know, like where do they spend a lot of their money? And it turned out like hiring engineers, hiring recruiters was like a huge, huge cost center for companies. And like they were just willing to spend a lot of money on it. And within like a year of starting her company, she grew her revenue to like a hundred grand a quarter. She was living like a great life. <laughs> just like she made it look easy her first time out of the gate, in part because like she picked a problem where like people had budgets. Right. And, and I think the insight here is like, if you really want to overly simplify the sales process, there's educate and then win. Like educate people that their need is real. And then once they're convinced that they want to solve this problem, then go win and be the way that you solve that problem for them. And if you're selling into people with budgets, you don't really need to educate because they're totally bought in on solving that problem already. Yeah. And education is hard and it's risky because you might educate somebody and then lose because <laughs> someone else comes right. along and wins. Yeah. Or more frequently, you educate somebody and they're like, eh, stop. Right. Yeah, they don't, they don't, I don't care. I've got these other things that like, I need to solve. <laughs> All right. So Broadway comes. So then you get a particular email. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm selling ads for like a few months. I'm just happy, to be honest, because I got to the point, I think in February 2016, where like Indie Hackers is going to pay all of my bills. And I was like, wow, like in less than a year, I've gone from like, you know, nothing to finally like one of the ideas I've done works. You know, so I'm like, so no, none of the other companies you'd worked on, you'd gotten to this point where it's like, no. revenue is covering my personal no. expenses. And it was better in like literally every single way. Like I eventually had like, I had added a community and so people were sort of talking to each other. So I began to see kind of a path where like, oh, I can do less work. Like maybe people can interview each other and like, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> people really liked it. You know, it was like a, a very, like I wasn't making to-do list software where like all I got were like angry customer emails because I don't have the right feature. Like every email I got was something positive. People talking about how inspired they were by an interview that they heard. Like it was just like a hundred percent good for my life in every single way. So I was just like blown away and super happy and just high on life. And then to make things even better, I get this email out of the blue. <laughs> and so like I hadn't gotten to Stripe yet on my on my sort of like list of sponsors to reach out to. I was maybe halfway And you down. weren't in the same batch. Like you didn't know that. No, like I think during like, the Stripe beta, yeah. I had like maybe like gone in there like a little Stripe chat room and like, you know, pointed out some bugs and asked some questions. But like I had never really talked to the founders outside of that. Uh, and the email, like I just stepped off a plane actually. I was going to a buddy's bachelor party in Mexico. And so I stepped off the plane, I was checking my emails and like the very top of the inbox was like, uh, acquire indie hackers, question mark from like Patrick at Stripe. 
And I was just like, holy shit. There's like, there's no way this email's real. Like, this is completely. (laughs) You're getting trolled. Yeah, I'm definitely getting trolled. But I read it and it was real. And he was just kind of like, hey, Cortland, like really like admiring what you're doing at Indie Hackers. You know, is there any way you would be open to Stripe, you know, potentially acquiring it? And so the first thing I did was like I forwarded it to my mom, sent it to my brother, <laughs> sent it to my friends. It's the Paul Graham email all over again. Yeah, yeah. It was like the coolest thing ever. And we ended up meeting and talking and kind of feeling each other out uh, at brunch the next Saturday. And uh, over the course of a month, like worked out kind of a deal. And I joined Stripe in April 2017. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts, so frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com acquired. Lots to unpack here. Before we get too far into it, I want to understand, let's let's relate it to our previous conversation on educating and then winning. Had Stripe or and or Patrick decided that they wanted to own an asset that was sort of a community of people talking about building stuff on the internet that very likely would need Stripe to monetize and then you were the pick? Or was it like, hey, wow, that guy's really got something cool? <laughs> uh, I think it's a combination of both. It's been funny, like looking at uh, just acquisitions over the years, talking to friends and also seeing like a little bit of stuff internally at Stripe where like it's just like so like idiosyncratic and like almost random how these acquisitions happen in many cases where it's like just like depending on how a particular person feels like this seems like the thing to buy. And I think in my case, Stripe has this kind of cool project internally called like the crazy ideas list. And it's like, hey, everybody write down like the craziest ideas. Like if it's a reasonable idea, it's not allowed on this list. Like you need to write down like just crazy things that we could potentially do that, you know, might win big. I think like some version of indie hackers had been on that list for many years. You know, like what if we had like a community for early stage startup founders? Just because we're a company like Stripe that wins like a lot of uh, business from early startups, like these startups grow. You know, they might be making a thousand dollars a month now, but like five years from now, they could be lift. And so like winning like the hearts and minds of early stage startups matters a lot. And so that idea was on there and they just like never did it. Right. Cause there's like maybe a thousand ideas on that list. And then I started Andy hackers 
it just worked. It worked really well. And it just like happened to very luckily perfectly align with what they wanted to do. Or it's like, okay, well, it's like empowering people to get started and inspiring them. And Stripe is a company that cares like a lot about its reputation. It's not an accident like that Stripe hasn't had, you know, any sort of major scandals like almost every other huge unicorn company. It's because the founders care a lot. And we like have a lot of good like will among founders and developers and like make a lot of decisions at the company that like are, you know, have that in mind. It's like to do best by people. And so ND Hackers was like also a huge check in that direction where like people just really liked ND Hackers. Like they liked the positivity, like the optimism. It was all about like how you can do it, you know, how you can kind of stick it to the man and like start your own business. It was very empowering. And I think crucially it did two things. It inspired people to start businesses who previously might not have had the confidence to do it. And it also helped people with businesses succeed. And like both of those things are very good for a company like Stripe that clearly wants more businesses to exist and more businesses to succeed. And what were some of your concerns once you started, after you got out of the initial wave of, oh my God, then you're like, wow, would, would I sell this? Should I sell this? Like, how, how did you think about some of the trade-offs and tensions there? Yeah, so a lot of my concern at the time, like one of the things that was weighing heaviest on my mind was like, I just really didn't like selling ads. I was really not having a great time. I mean, I was making money. It was like fun, fun to get checks. But like, I wanted to make indie hackers bigger and better. I wanted to spend a lot more time coding the community. Like at that time, the community only had like maybe like 40, 50 conversations a week. Now it's got like tens of thousands. And I just wanted the time to do that. And so I was thinking, okay, well, like if I go to Stripe, like what are they going to have me working on? You know, how much say are they going to have and what I'm doing? And like how much does their vision align with what my vision is for the company? And if it's off by even like a small amount, like maybe that's not a big deal today, but like four or five years from now, like that could be a huge deal. Like a small gap can turn into a really big gap. And so I really wanted to know like, okay, are we going to be aligned? I wanted to know, because that's kind of like for the like the betterment of the community, like the people at Indie Hackers, like is this going to be good for them? You know, if you have a community and you have something where like all your users are quite vocal, especially if they, they come from Hacker News, which most Indie Hackers did. Uh, <laughs> these are opinionated people. No. These are opinionated <laughs> people. And they don't like tend to look kindly on acquisitions that go wrong and, and watching their favorite products die. So I wanted to know, okay, like is Indie Hackers going to be better off for this? I wanted to know if I was going to be better off from this. You know, how much money is this acquisition going to like make me? Right? Like, uh, how does it compare? Right. The whole point of indie hackers, right, is like exactly. Yeah, this is got yeah, like... to. If I'm going <laughs> to no longer be sort of like technically indie, you know, like what is the trade off I'm making, and like how indie will I be? I have this whole point that I make to to friends, and like they, it always gets like mixed reception. But like I think everybody's kind of a business, even if you're an employee, you should think of yourself as a business. Anytime money changes hands, 100%. you should think of yourself as a business. Uh, if you want to learn how to improve your career, like read a business book and think about yourself as a business. And so, you know, as an employee, like, yeah, you might seem like you you have no power, but like I learned from contracting, like you have a lot of power. If you can make like the value or the, the service or product you provide to your employer really unique, like it's harder to fire you <laughs> and it's like you're more valuable. You can get paid more. You can get paid what you're worth rather than being paid like very little because you have so many competitors who have the exact same job title as you. And like, you know, so many other parts of like the employee experience relate to being a business. You know, like everybody has marketing experience. If you've ever made a resume, like that's basically an ad. And when you've like shipped it out to, you know, potential employers, like that's like basically marketing. And if you've done an interview, like you've done sales because you're trying to sell yourself. So I thought about myself in that light, like, okay, well, how much freedom and independence am I going to have as an employee of Stripe? Like, who am I going to report to? You know, what are they going to be telling me to do, if anything? And I got to imagine, even though this idea was on the Stripe crazy ideas list for a long time, probably the reason nobody ever did it is like, 
you got to focus on like do it. You can't be like pulled in like, oh yeah, like I know you're doing this thing, right? But like, <laughs> hey, we've got this bug. Like, can you just like jump in and like fix it? Totally. Or like, you know, we got to do this thing. Like, you know, you can get back to doing that thing, but you got to do this thing. Yeah. Like, you and know. It's also completely different. And it's, it's also like a completely different type thing. Like the average sort of engineer, like a bigger startup is not like, someone with a lot of startup experience. You know, there isn't like a roadmap for like, right. here's how you start a large community of founders. <laughs> you know, there's no like step-by-step process. Like it hasn't really been done before. For some reason, like there just aren't large communities of founders that have like really thrived online. And so uh, it's kind of easier to wait for somebody else to do it than it is to like pick a random employee and be like, good luck. You know, you're going to be able We're to gonna do go it. We're going to go make you a star. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. good luck. <laughs> gonna be able to, I mean, some people can do it, but like that's not why people typically apply to jobs because that's you know, if they wanted to do that, they would go start their own thing. So I was kind of worried, you know, like, okay, what is my responsibility going to be like? Am I going to be like a normal Stripe employee or not? And then like sort of the third box besides just like me and the community was like, what does Stripe want to get out of this? I really wanted to know like what Stripe wanted to get out of it because it's hard to predict, you know, if we're going to align, if I don't know like why you're even doing this. And like to Patrick and the leadership team's like credit, like they're just very open-minded folks. You know, like they don't necessarily need a ton of proof that something's going to work right? If something is like directionally pointing in the right direction and it can work, like they're more than happy to take a chance. And with like ND hackers and Stripe, it's kind of like ND hackers doesn't really capture a lot of the value that it creates. You know, if people start companies and their companies succeed uh, because of ND hackers or because of a story they heard um, or because somebody helped them on the community, like how do I make money from that? Like it turned out like I didn't, but like other companies exist that can capture that value, including Stripe. Cause if Stripe is the best product on the market, like what are they going to use for their new companies? They're going to use Stripe. And so Patrick like really just trusted like, Hey, we think that you can make Andy Hackers really big, really meaningful. You've done a great job so far. It's hard to even measure. Like even if you do make it big, like we'll never really know exactly how much has contributed and sort of added when to our sales. But like that's fine. And so, a couple of questions here, and I'll ask them together so you know both are coming. You don't have to give me numbers or clauses, but I'm looking for broad strokes. What do you need to put into? a legal contract in order to allay those concerns? And what do you just leave to trust? Because ultimately, these these things really are come down to, do you trust me? Do I trust you? And are we aligned? So that's the first one. The second one is, how on earth do you go about figuring out what a fair deal looks like based on what your business was before it was acquired? Yeah. These are tricky questions. And I, know, I never feel like the most qualified to answer acquisition questions. Like people, <laughs> even though this is acquired, uh, people call me all the time like, hey, I'm going through an acquisition. You went through one. Like, what happened with you? And I'm like, it's so specific to my situation. <laughs> I had no employees. Yeah, I, had, yeah, I was like a <laughs> like, solo founder with no employees. Like, I hadn't even incorporated. But like, there's some like little tricks and, and things that helped me. So, uh, the first thing that happened was that Patrick suggested that we communicate over text. So we like got on WhatsApp, which instantly like I was like, oh, this is so smart because like I had been sitting there like I think it was a Sunday like typing out an email like this like sort of acquisition numbers negotiation and it was like such a high pressure thing like what am I going to say in this email like. Versus text, it's just like so casual. You're just kind of firing off like messages and like it just like lowers sort of the stress and like almost the adversarial nature of it in a strong way. So that was kind of like the first tip. But then I thought about, okay, well, how do I value, you know, what indie hackers is worth? Like, what am I going to be happy with here? And I think your first question was also like, how much does trust come into it? So like the first thing I started doing was trying to answer both of these questions actually through kind of back channeling. So I just emailed as many people as I knew who either worked at Stripe had dealings with Stripe or had dealings with Patrick in the past. I'm like, hey, what, what kind of person am I dealing with? And I got like a lot of really positive stories. Like this is a person who cares deeply about like what's good for people, et cetera, very ethical, et cetera. 
And like, I think you need that level of trust because like in a contract, uh, as I soon found out, like there's just so many random like loopholes and like edge cases that you haven't considered and just like really easy ways to get kind of screwed over. Like at some point, uh, I was talking to Patrick and we were hammering things out. And at like one point, I got an email that wasn't from Patrick. It was from like Stripe General Counsel. And I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> like maybe I should have a lawyer because <laughs> I don't know what this guy's talking about. So then I went and hired a lawyer and like uh, her name was Mattel. She was great, but she was just like the most paranoid person ever. She was like, here are all the ways <laughs> they're going to screw you over. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. They're going to do this. And like every single contract that like came, she like found some way to tighten up the language or just like go to bat for me in ways where like, because I had a lot of trust, uh, perhaps naively, like I just would have been like, ah, it's fine. Like they have like the best intentions here. Uh, and so it's kind of like, you know, trust, but verify. Like I had a lot of trust and I don't think I would have done the deal if I didn't trust that like everybody involved was being sincere with what they said, that their like sort of thoughts aligned with their actions and their words. But also having someone in my corner to like make sure that these things wouldn't happen was I think important and gave me a lot of security. Yeah. Well, and the thing about these situations like this is like... <laughs> The documents and the clauses and all that, that, they exist for when things go sour. You know, like anytime you are looking at those documents, like things are on a bad path. You know, <laughs> you don't ever want to look at them. Yeah. <laughs> but if you have to look at them, you know, what is written in those documents is what is going to happen. So like, exactly. So they're important and they, they matter. And I think in my situation, like what kind of happened is that we like agreed on numbers but at like in a very like high level, non-specific, like this is what would make us all happy way. And that happened like pretty quickly. It didn't take that long. And like part of that was also doing research, like okay, how much do engineers at Stripe get paid? Like, can I, you know, by that point I was pretty good at getting people to reveal like numbers to me <laughs> from working on any hackers. So I got a lot of numbers. I was like, okay, like this is what I want. And I was like, I tried to be a firm negotiator, but like you kind of agree on these numbers and then you go to like draw up a document and it turns out there's like just a million little edge cases, you know, like, okay, like if you like for example if you're talking about stock like, like what kind of stock do you want what like what class like when does it fast what period is it fast like how long uh, how to refreshes work like all sorts of different things that i think if you're kind of like a typical employee you might not consider but if you're coming in through an acquisition like the sky's the limit like you can ask for or demand like literally whatever you want and put it in a contract that's going to be your special contract that no one else at the company has anything that's even like that so for me like it wasn't just like kind of worst case scenario it was like okay well like now it's this whole like phase 2 of negotiations where we're like you know talking about all these little details that we hadn't even considered you know what mechanics did you put in place obviously it wasn't like okay here's a bunch of cash welcome to stripe like it's either stock or it's vesting or it's tied to incentive based targets for indie hackers or it's tied to stripe as a company rather than indie hackers like how did you sort of structure the way that there would be incentives over time for both sides I don't know how much I'm legally allowed to say. Don't even get close. Like, I think that what we're interested in is like, how should people, if they're going into a situation like this, think about that? I think the first thing to be aware of is just like all the different options that you have. I think it's very easy when you think about an acquisition to just think like number, you know, this company sold for X amount, right? But like, that's like, from my, in my experience, rarely how it happens. It's rarely that simple. And like, some of the other options are just much more advantageous. Like often companies will like give you more equity than they will give you cash. And if you can sort of like evaluate the company, like if it's Stripe, 
Like for the love of God, like take the equity, <laughs> you know, take the, yeah, equity. take the stock. Yeah. Uh, you know, if it's like, so if it's a Groupon, then like, I don't know, you know, maybe you want the cash and like, this is like an exercise. That, well, this is the difference I think between, you know, like, like Salesforce by Slack, it's about the number, right? Like that's because it's a company buying, it's an entity buying an yep. entity, corporate entity buying a corporate entity with an indie hacker business. Like, no, it's you. It's you literally know, like, you. That, that's, and, I, and I think yeah. they're like, like, I don't know what like Elon Musk's situation is, but he has like all these like weird, like earn out bonuses where he gets like more money if like the stock price goes up. So even like those big company situations, like there's all sorts of ways to sort of like figure things out. Like, you know, if, if Salesforce buys Slack, like what does that mean for Stuart Butterfield? Like perhaps he could say like, I want more money if we hit these extra targets, et cetera. And uh, perhaps Mark Benioff would be like, sure, that's fine. And so I think if you can like think about kind of these creative ways to sort of like align your incentives, it can, you know, result in like a happier process. And, and maybe on both sides, like maybe your acquirer wants to pay you more if you hit performance targets, because like the risk for them uh, isn't the initial cash outlay. It's that it's not going to pay off in the future. And so if they know you're incentivized to like to actually do a good job, then I think that that can be kind of a win-win, even though like, you know, they're sort of on the hook for more money in the future. In my particular case, like it's funny because Indie Hackers is very much an indie hacker business. You know, I was just like making money from advertisers. I had like some affiliate links on the site. I think I was making like seven and a half, eight thousand dollars a month by the time Stripe acquired the company. Whereas like today I feel much more like a high growth startup where like Stripe owns any hackers, but they're like almost kind of like an investor. And like my goal is to like grow as much as possible. And like, I don't make any money. Like any hackers doesn't like have any sort of revenue we bring in. we have kind of a budget, which is almost like funding to help us grow. <laughs> and so it was like, it re- represented kind of like a complete change in how I viewed growing my own business. And I kind of went to this, uh, almost to this, like the exact opposite of what like the stereotypical indie hacker company is trying to do. You know, the comp at that point is more to intrapreneurship, which is such a funny word because it's like they took a French word and then changed it to sound like an English word to get the point across. Anyway, what differences do you notice between Indie Hackers, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Stripe? And I'm sure that that may not exactly be technically correct, but it's sort of its own brand. It just has a buy Stripe thing on. It's run by you versus the things that start within Stripe, but are their own self-contained thing like Stripe Press or like Stripe Atlas? Yeah, I mean, I think branding is the by far the biggest difference because it's pretty obvious to most most people who are aware of indie hackers know that indie hackers started before Stripe. And they know that it's kind of like my thing. I'm very transparent. Like they're going to listen to this podcast and be like, clearly Corlin is running this on its own. You know, <laughs> this is not like a, a super heavy handed Stripe initiative. Plus, like a lot of people don't even know Indie Hackers is owned by Stripe. Like there's like a very small, like little logo that says like etched like Stripe at the very bottom of the website that you kind of have to search to find, which is freeing in a way because it gives me the ability to make my own decisions that don't necessarily reflect on the Stripe brand. Like I remember a buddy of mine at Stripe who kind of ran like the Stripe Atlas community, like got an email from any hackers. He's like, oh my God, you said fucking an email, like a Stripe email. <laughs> and I'm like, I've said fucking like a thousand. <laughs> I have probably like a dozen of these emails. <laughs> uh, there's no one at Stripe who's like kind of monitoring that. You know, there's a lot of trust that goes both ways. Like I trust Stripe and they trust me. And like it doesn't, you know, it's weird in a way. Like I feel like a lot of the positive things and feelings people have about any hackers sort of get accrued to Stripe. <laughs> but like some of the riskier decisions like don't weigh on Stripe at all. And so it's almost best of, of, of both worlds. Whereas I, I think if like I, you know, started some Stripe product internally, like Stripe Press, like that has Stripe's name, like literally in the name, which means it's a certain like level of quality that it has to rise to. There's a certain standard that it has to rise to. It's harder to get things off the ground when you do that. Like you need to match like certain accessibility standards and have like a certain reach of people in different countries and have all these different languages. And I think it's just harder to iterate on any sort of like startup type initiative that's trying to find product market fit. If you have all of these expectations on you. This is why I think it's smart for like Google when they're doing their innovations to like try to like 
spend things out of the Google brand and just have them be like dissociated. So like you d- people don't have these expectations because you just kind of need to start with something embarrassing and rough. And what yeah. I've been doing for the well, last YouTube's a great example, yeah. right? Like when Google bought YouTube, there was still like the Viacom lawsuit was going on. Like there was all sorts of, you know, people were up in arms. There's crazy stuff happening. You can maybe say there's still is crazy stuff happening on YouTube. Meanwhile, although now Go- it's like com- Google video was a failing product. Like it was trying to right. do the exact same thing, but right. was going through Google's but they standard gonna, process. You know, yeah, they weren't gonna just you know put movies up on there <laughs> that were filmed with a yeah. you know camcorder in a theater. Like you could take bigger risks through an acquisition, especially of like an established yeah. brand on its own. That's really cool. All right, so tell us now why has it made sense for Stripe? And I mean, this is a little bit of a softball question, but like, how's it going? How's it gone? <laughs> Was it a good idea for Stripe to buy indie hackers? What have you built to do any integrations if you have? Yeah. So, I mean, it's worth like noting sort of my working style at Stripe is that I've reported to Patrick since I got here. We don't meet all that often. You know, there have been years where we met like twice. <laughs> there are years where we've, I've sent him like weekly updates, not on his request, but on my request because I just wanted him to know what's going on. Everything I've added to Indie Hackers, literally everything that I've done has been 100% my choice. There's not been a single request from Stripe saying, hey, can you do this? That's happened. So a couple of things have happened since we joined Stripe. I remember like meeting Patrick maybe nine months after the acquisition and he was like, oh, this looks really good. Like I was kind of worried that for you to grow you would sort of have to just kind of run faster and faster. Because when Stripe acquired Indie Hackers, it was still primarily just kind of a media company. Like we were doing nothing but putting out these interviews. And we had this like very fledgling community forum, but like it was like you had to like click a link to get to it. And it was only like a, like a small number of people. Whereas today, the bulk of what happens on Indie Hackers is sort of user powered. It's more of like a, an actual platform where like I'm not doing like the vast majority of the value that Indie Hackers creates to the world is like does not come from me. You did it. You shifted from media company to software product. Exactly, which I always wanted to do, but it took Jesus did it take a long time. Um, <laughs> so probably I would say like the biggest accomplishment since joining Stripe was just the growth of the community forum, which is now on the homepage. If you go to IndieHackers.com, you just see dozens of conversations where hundreds of people are sort of helping each other out, asking questions, and like helping each other start companies, meeting co-founders without me really doing anything. The company profiles you create through interviews and that people create themselves, they're all mixed together. Yeah, yeah, right? kind of. And I've, I've been trying to like consolidate things and not quite consolidated yet. So there is kind of a separate section on the website where you can go and you can read. And then we've done about 500 interviews now. Uh, all the different interviews from indie hackers who've kind of shared their stories. And like you can kind of sort and filter those. You can also go to sort of the product directory, which I mentioned earlier, where it's just more like self-serve. Like anybody can add a product there. You can share how much money you're making, share your milestones along the way. And everybody sort of there competes to have like the best milestone every day. So we have this leaderboard that kind of resets and whoever posts like the best update for that day in terms of upvotes gets to the top of the leaderboard and they get more traffic, et cetera. And so it's kind of a mechanism to incentivize people to fill out these little timelines which has a side effect that everybody else can go read the timelines and learn how to build a company from these examples. So that's grown to like 12,000 products. We've got 500 interviews. We have a podcast that you know went from, I think, just maybe like 1,000 downloads total when Stripe acquired Indie Hackers to now millions of downloads. And the community forum has gone from just a few dozen conversations a week to the point where there's like 1,000 comments a day, over 250 posts every single day in the community forum, and just like tens of thousands of people helping each other out. So, uh, you know... Based on the numbers, Indie Hackers has grown like tremendously since yeah. we've joined Stripe. That's so awesome. And one of the things like we like to measure is kind of like a rough estimate of like how many people have started companies as a result of Indie Hackers. So we kind of send out like a survey to people maybe six months or so after they join. And you know, we ask them to say like true or false to different questions. And one of them is, you know, you know, would you have started your company if not for Indie Hackers? 
And most people are like, oh yeah, I would have started it anyway, or I haven't started yet. But a good 15 to 20% of people, depending on the month, say they would not have started their company if they didn't encounter some story or some person on Indie Hackers. And if you multiply that by like 140,000, you know, different people who've joined the community forum, like that's, that's a, like a very substantial number that's of companies. That's a lot of companies. Yeah, that's a yeah. lot of tiny companies. And some of them have like gotten bigger, gotten acquired. <laughs> a lot of them are on Stripe. And sort of the way that Patrick explained to me earlier when I first joined Stripe was like, hey, it's your job to, you know, get people to start companies. It's our job to have a product that's good enough to win them over. You know, I'm not like sitting here trying huh. to like hawk Stripe and convert people to Stripe. Like that's something that and, Stripe does on its own. And what was that 140,000 user number when you were acquired? Ish. Let me look it up. <laughs> I'm also curious. I'm. This is the third time I've done this to you. I'm queuing up two questions. Approximately what percent of indie hackers use Stripe as their, uh, for their company? So the second one, I, d- I don't know the answer to we don't really have like a process. Like we don't measure, you know, like there's like, it's a lot of just trust, right? Okay. Like we know that Stripe is pretty damn good as a product. Uh, it comes up on the community forum all the time. I think it was the most referenced company and all of the interviews that I did even before joining Stripe. I mean, honestly, I don't even know what else you would use if you want to take payments on the internet. You could use a ton of other stuff, but they're just like custom services that are white labeling Stripe underneath like that's what glow is like yeah <laughs> like i don't even know if there is another alternative it's it's, it's a really good product <laughs> yes david there are alternatives uh, it is also a very 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 good product <laughs> so for me to alternatives worth using yeah. let's put it that yeah, way so yeah. for me to answer your question on exactly how many users there were right when i joined stripe i have to run like kind of a query it'll probably take me like a couple minutes so like is it worth it on air sql writing well do you have any mental ballpark of like on the order of a thousand, ten thousand. It was on the order of like certainly fewer than five thousand, probably more than a few hundred. All right, that helps us understand. I think the the scale, and it's been what three and a yeah. half years. Yeah, it's been three and a half years. I joined in April twenty seventeen. So, Andy Hackers has been at Stripe for much much longer than it, it existed before Stripe. That's really cool. Even just like super ballpark numbers, let's say. 100,000 companies added since the Stripe acquisition, 15 to 20% indie hackers played a major role in that company being started. It's 15 to 20,000 companies. Presumably a large portion of them are using Stripe. Like That seems like a great outcome for Stripe. The really interesting thing to me, and now we're in, so for people who listen to more acquired episodes, we've been through history and facts a little bit right now. We're in what would have happened otherwise. And and then we, we've done a lot of playbook as well, but we can specifically call that out. You know, if Stripe hadn't acquired indie hackers, it's not like all the companies that have been created wouldn't have used Stripe. Like, I don't think you influenced their, any of their decision on what you know, who, who to use for payments. So what they were really doing is saying like, man, this thing is really good for our business that it exists. Let's make sure it can thrive as much as possible. It's interesting to me trying to think through the scenario where Stripe didn't acquire indie hackers and the exact same outcome happened for Stripe. Yeah. Again, like I don't measure, you know, would you have used Stripe? It's not even my goal really to like make people use Stripe. It's my goal to like make people start companies. I want people who like would never have started a company because they didn't think it was possible. They hadn't seen anyone like them start a company. They didn't see a path. Like when they hear a story on the Andy Hackers podcast, or when they go on the forum and they see somebody who's like, like I met a YC founder at this Stripe event a couple years ago, and I was just kind of talking to him, and he's like, "Yeah, I love Indie Hackers." I'm like, 
uh, you know, what's your experience with it? He's like, oh, I read the story you did with this guy who started this like review site. And I'm like, I'm way smarter than this guy. I could start a company. So I did. Then I got into YC and now I don't go to indie hackers anymore. <laughs> and like, that's, <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty common. Like I meet a lot of people like that who are just like inspired and like they literally started because they just read that it was possible. And when I think about like me, like I started my career because like people told me it was possible, you know, and I think spreading those stories helps people get started. And like, that's literally all I care about. Like, I don't care how many of these people end up using Stripe. Like that's the job of Stripe engineers and product managers to like make Stripe the best product. All right. So it looked like you were, uh, you were writing some SQL there in the background while I was pontificating. What'd you come up with? So we've got, we had exactly 1,403 users on the day that we got acquired by Stripe. So we're hundred X bigger today. Almost exactly hundred X bigger. Yeah. Almost exactly hundred X. Just pretty cool. Wow. It's cool to see how that. Yeah. I mean, th- wow, that's eerie. That's yeah. cool. There's a lot of stuff to to look into too. It's like, okay, well, how much bigger is the podcast? Like, how many more conversations are people having? Because it's not just about having more people, but it's about engaging them more. Uh, how many like return visits do people have? And we track <laughs> a lot of random stuff, but like number of users, straightforwardly, a hundred x bigger in three years. It's awesome. I mean, it's it's a it's a bet on the internet. It's a bet on the internet being able to enable people to create far more companies than they otherwise could have. Did you see these these stats that came out um, last quarter about like new business creation, where it's like like yeah like six hundred people or six hundred thousand people a quarter in the United States were creating businesses like ten years ago, and then last year it was like eight hundred thousand people a quarter, and this year it's like one and one point six million people created a business or filed to start a business in like Q three twenty twenty, which is insane. Like so cool. It's doubled. Like, aren't there more and more winner take all opportunities? Like, are we seeing now we're well into playbook, but uh, are we seeing basically like a barbellification where the big startups consolidate to only a few big winners in each market, but then there's like massive, massive opportunity to go after long tail? Yeah, I think number one, there's a lot of these winner take all startups, but almost all of them create sort of niche business opportunities for other founders. And so it's not like this exclusive thing like, oh, they took the Facebook took the social networking market. Now there's no business opportunities. Well, it's like it turns out a ton of media companies get started off the back of that. And a ton of like app companies get started off the back of that. And like there's companies that like teach you how to build a Facebook page that get started off the back of that. So like I think as an indie hacker, you don't have to worry too much about the winner take all companies. Uh, and then we have all these like platforms, you know, YouTube, Substack, OnlyFans, uh, arguably, you know, Twitter, where people are just like building audiences and businesses off the back of all those things. And so what's kind of cool is it's kind of like never going to be, <laughs> you know, all the niches are taken. There's no ideas left. And also, I think what people underestimate is just the number of people adopting technology for the first time. Because just because like Zoom exists doesn't mean everybody uses it. Like we've seen very clearly this year, way more people are using Zoom because they've been forced to adopt this thing that they've been kind of ignoring in the past because they just like didn't want to. And so as more and more people get on the internet and create businesses and like use these products, it's more opportunities. And then like most successful indie hacker businesses sell to other businesses. So it's kind of like this self-fulfilling sort of chain reaction where the more businesses there are, the more like products they need. And so it's kind of cool to see it accelerating. And I wouldn't be surprised if that number, you know, in a few years is like 5 million Americans a month are creating an online business. Yeah. That's what I was thinking on that is like, you know, you've got the platforms like say let's stripe or shopify like say and then you've got people that like start shopify stores or start businesses on the internet and use stripe but then there's this whole other category that i think is like perfect for indie hackers of like oh well there's actually stuff that you can build to help the people that are using shopify that are using stripe that like you know there's so many businesses that have been started around shopify that are like and, and stripe too that are like not a business on shopify they are a business that provides us a, a, a custom set of tools for a certain set of users 
that need like hobby businesses, like you're a hobby game store and you are both buying and selling from your customers. Like your customers come and they trade in stuff. Like you can run on Shopify. Great. But like you also need some custom functionality to buy stuff from your customers. Right. Boom. Business. Exactly. Like, <laughs> and I think like a lot of the smarter like founders are figuring out ways to kind of escape the competition because it's like, okay, you can build like a Shopify plugin, but there's like a lot of other Shopify plugins. So it's a cool opportunity, but then you get kind of crowded out. Like I, I'm talking to a, a guy tomorrow. His name is Jordan O'Connor. He's got like a really cool story where he's like, you know, a father, a husband, he had a full-time job and he would like eke out time every morning to kind of work on his business because he knew that like after like 8 a.m., his son was going to be awake and he's going to have no time at all (laughs) to do anything. And so what he ended up doing was kind of escaping the competition and he built a bot for this app called Poshmark, which is huge. Like a Mm, lot of people buy and sell like their used clothing on Poshmark, but they don't have a marketplace. Like they have no, like they don't even have an official API. So we just sort of like reverse engineered things. He's like, there's not going to be any competition here, but it's kind of the same playbook, like build, you know, for this, an ancillary tool for this bigger platform. And he built like kind of a bot that helps you like do well on Poshmark. And I think he got to like 20 grand a month. And now he's just kind of like, he quit his job. He's just kind of set. And he's just like doing other fun projects now that like, you know, interest him from year to year while that bot just kind of makes money for him in the background. Magic of software. It's pretty crazy. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where quote-unquote energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com acquired. That's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com acquired or click the link in the show notes. All right, well, I'm going to start bringing us home here. Cortland, answer this question however you see fit, but how would you grade the Indie Hackers acquisition by Stripe in terms of was that a good use of capital and resources for Stripe? Oh, A+. Plus. I think it's... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm slightly biased here. You know? <laughs> like Stripe is a company, as you may know, that has uh, lots and lots of money. And the Indie Hackers acquisition did not cost billions of dollars. I think it's generated only goodwill towards Stripe, more customers, more users towards Stripe. And I think it's done well for literally everybody involved. I think Stripe's happy to have it. I'm happy to be a part of Stripe. And I think for the people who use Indie Hackers, they were very concerned early on. You know, they're very worried. And I don't think I've met a single person who said like they aren't happy that it happened. So it's hard to imagine it having gone better. Yeah. Should more people do this? I mean, the way that I'm sort of categorizing this in my head is 
they made an investment to ensure the continuity of this thing that was creating new customers for them. And like, do other companies do that? Should more companies do that? I think they should be a lot more creative and imaginative. I think like there's like as humans, we have this impulse to just like, to just like mess with things. It's really hard to buy something and then not touch it. <laughs> you know, it's really hard to do that. And I think when people think about like, okay, if I buy this, like what am I going to do with it? I think, oh, it's going to be like so much work. I have to do this, I have to do that. And they don't like make these acquisitions. Whereas I think at Stripe, they're very much like, no, Cortland's doing a good job and we don't have to do anything. And like, if we can just ensure that it keeps going, like you said, like that's a huge win by itself. But there's other wins too. You know, I think one of the trends we're going to see going forward is like tech companies basically owning like some kind of media company, which I think is super powerful because like media companies are what connects with actual people on the ground. And in a way, like Andy Hackers is still very much a media company. Like I still spend a lot of time on the podcast. We spend a lot of time on our newsletter, put out a ton of content and we're sort of like becoming a platform almost like Substack-esque where we're enabling other people to sort of build newsletters and grow their audiences on Indie Hackers. So I think like even without just like having Indie Hackers continue to exist and even without it like driving excess additional customers to Stripe, it's just a good way for Stripe to be able to communicate in the future if it wants to, you know, we're launching this thing or like, you know, we're, we think this about the world. And like now they have a place that's not just Hacker News or Twitter to do that. Has Stripe done any, anything else like this since you've been bought or? Yeah, Stripe has a magazine called Increment Magazine. Uh, just increment.com. It's kind of like the best sort of magazine for all sorts of basically work that gets done. So they've done like issues on like software engineering and APIs and the cloud and being on call. And like people love this magazine. It's really well produced. It was created by kind of initially Susan Fowler, who's the engineer who kind of blew the whistle on Uber back in the day. And now she works, I think, at the New York Times. Uh, so that's like a really cool like Stripe project that I don't think gets enough press and attention. There's also like Stripe Press, which is kind of like an in-house thing. It wasn't like exactly acquired, but all these sort of initiatives, I think, you know, involve often people who are like come in from outside the company and help. They're all like kind of moonshots. You know, I put it in a very similar category to Indie Hackers, even though it's like, you know, different, but it's something that most companies like wouldn't do, but like Stripe kind of trusts like, okay, well, what if we put out like these books uh, that like help people become better founders, make better decisions or start more companies? It's hard to measure like how many people actually read this book and made a decision because of it. But like, we can kind of trust that like they will do that because like we know that's how inspiration works and like it'll increase Stripe's bottom line. Yep. Makes total sense. For acquired listeners, because I know we're releasing this in, in both feeds, where can people find you? What should they check out first of, of the various indie hackers and Cortland properties? Yeah, I mean, the easiest way to really get into indie hackers is the podcast. So if you just go to your podcast player and search for indie hackers, it'll come right up top for you. Uh, check out any of the episodes. They're all pretty good. They're all different stories of founders and how they've succeeded. And so I just recommend listening to a few of them and really absorbing like, you know, what is this path like? You know, how can you start off maybe as an anti hacker and then eventually grow to, to uh, start a much bigger company? I've, I've interviewed like lots of founders of like YC funded companies and VC funded companies, but also tiny indie hackers who don't want to grow anymore. So check out the podcast and you can find me on Twitter at CS Allen. Awesome. Well, listeners, we hope you have a happy holidays. It has been one of the best parts of our 2020 being with you all, and we will see you next time. We will see you next year. Cannot wait Indeed. for 2021. <laughs> but seriously, like, been the best part of 2020 hanging out with you all virtually it's just been a great year the world has said it's been a great year for acquired in the community <laughs> can't wait for next year see you in 2021 everyone